With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Decades ago, I said that, you know, I didn't know much about Brazil, still don't. But from what I heard from people who had been there, or people who were from there, uh, because I'd heard a long time ago that outside of Africa, the largest population of black people is in Brazil. But you don't ever see them on television, even on the Brazilian programs. It's every now and then, I mean, somebody will pan the camera, and you'll spot them on the, uh, at, at Mardi Gras time, but where are they the rest of the time when they make the advertisements and do all the hoopla and whatnot? You wouldn't think that it's, you know, it was just, you would think that there's just a smattering of black people in Brazil. I mean, when I say black people, the black people that look like black people in, Af- in Central Africa. Mm-hmm. But uh, the numbers are huge. But they all push back up in those hills. But when it comes to classification, from what I understand, Brazilians will tell you, we don't have any discrimination here. You know, everybody's the same. Color don't make no difference here. This is Brazil. When the Olympic torch arrives to herald the start of the Olympic Games, it's usually a moment of joy and patriotism for the host city. But not this year in Rio de Janeiro. Protesters are angry about the billions of dollars spent on these games during a historic recession in Brazil. Police have used tear gas, pepper spray, and rubber bullets to clear a path for the torch through demonstrators. NPR's Lulu Garcia Navarro joined us earlier from the streets of Rio just after the torch passed by. Well, 
Well, it's actually extraordinarily chaotic. You can hear protesters behind me. Um, they are saying that the torch is a national shame. The torchbearer is surrounded by riot police, essentially. This is not the scenes that uh, the Brazilian government and, of course, the Olympic organizers were hoping so close to these opening ceremonies. Only yesterday we saw riot police um, having to shoot their way uh, through protesters in a different part of the city just to get the torch to go through. So really, really a polarizing scenes. You know, on the other hand, you have families here as well who are actually booing the protesters. So it's causing a great deal of controversy and a lot of tension. Yeah, you're talking about this controversy. Obviously, the Brazilian police are coming down very hard on these protesters. Yes, the Brazilian police is one of the most brutal in the world. Um, and one uh, person said to me, uh, they looked more like the Hunger Games and not the Olympic Games. Uh, when you're seeing police having to shoot their way through the crowds, one 10-year-old girl was injured with a rubber bullet. Um, and so, you know, just basically the entire atmosphere has been, I think, poisoned um, by so many of the problems that Brazil is facing. When you speak to the protesters, they say, hey, we're not against the Olympic Games in principle, but we are lacking education, we are lacking health care. Is this really the moment in a huge financial crisis for Brazil to be putting this on when people are suffering, when people are unemployed? There have been so many setbacks for Brazil when it comes to the Olympics that we've been hearing about. I mean, is this a sign that things are just plain falling apart, you know, just before the opening ceremony? Well, I mean, certainly we've just seen a litany of problems uh, in the run-up to these games. I mean, we're seeing reports of infighting within the uh, Rio Olympic Committee. Um, they just don't have the money to pay for basic things, uh, generators, food for events. Um, so it's really um, been, I think, quite chaotic and very disappointing to average Brazilians. When you speak to them, I think that they feel that uh, they were hoping that the best face of Brazil uh, would be on show for the world. And instead, the images that are being broadcast are the ones that I'm seeing in front of me right now with riot police, with protesters, uh, with one side against the other fighting over these games. You're saying one side against the other. Can you talk about the Brazilians who are reacting to the criticism of the games? Yes, it was really interesting. I spoke to uh, one lady, and, her, and she was there with her kids, and she said, listen, we've been going through such a hard time. Yes, um, there are things to protest, but this is not the moment to do it. This is a moment when we should come together, when we should show our best face to the world. Um, you know, Brazil is a wonderful country, and everyone is looking at us right now. So I don't believe that this is the moment for protest, she told me. And you can really feel that there is that division in the crowd. There are people here who feel, yes, let's use the Olympic Games to highlight our grievances, and other people who say this is a very special moment for Brazil. Let's not ruin it. That's NPR's Lulu Garcia Navarro on the scene in Rio. Lulu, thank you. Stay safe. You're welcome. Listen, just touching on some real issues right here tonight. That's, That's, right. All. That's all. That's all. I want y'all to observe the excellence here. BX providing the Sonics, my man, Minnesota. I'm letting the beat ride out because it's a part that I like when it come up. You know what I'm saying? I take this time to say what's up to my family. <laughs> you hear that? You know what I'm saying? For sure. Just observe the excellence of that. That's many. Hey, back. Fall back. Uh-uh. With the guitars. It's hip-hop music. It's good enough to speak for itself. And you got to do right by it. Minnesota. Ain't no black people in Minnesota. Please don't tell me this, Lord. Please, Jesus, don't tell me that he's gone. Please don't tell me that he's gone. Please, officer, don't tell me that you just did this to him. The first time I saw the video of Philando Castile dying as his girlfriend narrated a live stream, it reminded me of the morning after my dad died, when I woke up shocked that the world could possibly continue the same way. 
I went to Minnesota a week later when Philando was laid to rest. It wasn't my first time there. I was a public radio reporter in the Twin Cities from about 2010 to 2014. Like many outsiders, I soon learned how proud Minnesotans are of their grit and progressiveness. They're also proud of their history as a haven, first for African Americans from things like Jim Crow segregation, then for desperate refugees from across the world. More recently, though, Minnesota's liberal spirit has been tested. Police relations with minority communities have been tense. Like other states, there were questionable police shootings of black men in Minnesota long before cell phone video. I attended press conferences with grieving African-American families that seemed to follow the same sad script. To give you a sense of what the atmosphere was like, I want to play a bit of a story I did in 2013 about the family of an unarmed black man in St. Paul. Police thought he had drugs and blocked his car. They shot him when they say he tried to ram them and pin down an officer. A year later, his family was still reeling. They said my dad was burning and down there where the devil at. But, like, that's really not true. He's up in heaven, and I know that for a fact because he was a good person. You know, I wrote people, I called people, and, you know, some people just turned me down or didn't respond. St. Paul Police spokesman Paul Paulos says he doesn't know if the St. Paul Police Department has ever reached out to members of Gaddy's family. In most instances, a lot of families don't talk to the police after an incident like this. Now, depending on what the family wants or how they want to close it, uh, or closure would be totally up to them. So all that is to explain why Black Lives Matter resonated so strongly in Minnesota. At the same time, Muslims in Minnesota have been living in the increasing glare of government scrutiny as young Somalis left to join terror groups abroad. Now young Somali Minnesotans feel targeted twice over. Technically, we have it double as bad because we're Muslim and black. That's Filson Ibrahim. Her generation of Somali Americans are the first of their kind, and they're coming of age. Many are defying long-held beliefs about black people and finding a new American identity in the Black Lives Matter movement. This episode is about how they're uniting some immigrant and African-American communities for the first time. In this first part of the episode, we'll talk to Filson and another member of Black Lives Matter, Nima Omar. Minnesota churches and nonprofits found a home for thousands of families displaced by the Somali Civil War. For Filson Ibrahim's family, that home ended up being in a small, slightly remote, very white Minnesota town. Which I joke that it was kind of a kind of a hellhole, but I don't know how appropriate that is. <laughs> but it is it's somewhat true because for an outsider like they don't make it easy. We're in a room with a bunch of Filson's friends at Augsburg College, where she's working on an environmental studies degree. Filson's 27 and small, like me, with a hijab tucked into a jean jacket. They like let you know how you don't belong in this community and how you need to go back. And yeah, it's a challenging space to grow up. How did you deal with it? We just had a very tiny community. Like I grew up in townhouses, so majority of the people that lived around me and my neighbors were Somali. But yeah, we just held it down, like, whatever we needed. We took care of each other. Like, we were transporting our kids to high schools. We would, like, shop for each other. We would check up on each other if, like, our parents were working. So we were just our own community. And then what happened? And then we moved up to the cities in 2008. 
That's about the time things started to dramatically change for Somalis in Minnesota. Dozens of young Somali men left or tried to leave to join a terrorist group in Somalia. In response, the Justice Department created a program to identify youth at risk of radicalization. And that's where the problem comes in, because there aren't any guidelines or any like proven data of who or what a radicalized youth looks like. Somali youth felt singled out for scrutiny and suspicion, Filson says, similar to the way African-Americans have been feeling for generations. But she says Somali-Americans have thought of themselves as different from black Americans and held themselves apart. Having our countries being colonized by the Western civilization, that anti-blackness runs deep with us. A lot of us, a lot of my parents, a lot of like our grandparents think that like being white equals you having power and being black is the opposite of that. So a lot of us have innate hatred for who we are and just generally for black people. I think like that divide and conquer mentality works very well. It has worked and it works very well to this day. Organizations that bring us to America warn us about African-Americans. Like a lot of immigrants that came to America, a lot of us have been told not to speak with or talk to and be weary and like limit the interactions that we have with African-Americans because they tend to be scary, they tend to be violent, they tend to be gang members. So we have the mentality coming in to America. What helped you get there? I had the similar experiences too. That's Wilson's friend, Awali Osman, a Somali-American who organizes a debate league for Somali high schoolers at Augsburg. He's tall and lanky and usually has a big smile. What helped you make the change from you know, what was taught to you and where you are now? That's a good question. It is a good question. That's such a great question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think just unlearning everything that I learned in school. Like every history class that I was a part of in school turned out to be a lie. In America. In America. And then having conversations with other black folks and being friends with black folks and slowly but surely like seeing that, hey, we deal with the same stuff. Like, oh, you go to the store, you get followed, I get followed. You have a question in class, the teacher disrespects you or doesn't even take the time to like learn your name, that happens to me. Um, there's a, a great example. Me and my friend were in like, a chemistry class, I think, and we're the only Somalis in there. And our, our teacher would give us like the opposite, like my paper to her and her paper to me. Didn't even really care to know who was who and would mess up our names and would be like, oh, I'm sorry. And we had like, I mean, Ashley's, like four different Ashley's with like, and Ashley that spells her name with like two E's, another one with an G, like, and then that was all straightened out in their, in their brain. But like a Filson and a Halima are two, are one of the same. So you guys like became adults as the, the kids going abroad was happening and the Black Lives Matter was happening. So yeah, it's a good, what a time to be alive, right? Like, all these tensions are bubbling up. People are finding who they are and voicing their opinion louder than ever before. Did this help you understand it? I feel like, mm, not understand it, but like, it made it made it okay to feel what I'm feeling. Like, I was just telling, I was just having this conversation with my sister. Like, growing up, being a minority or being a different group, it's like... Your anger is like a cake, but the frosting is like all wrapped up and pretty and designed. Like you don't really see what's in it. So like you feel, you feel sometimes, like you feel frustrated or angry, but you never know 
like where or like why this is happening to you because it's all like wrapped up nicely but having people show up like black lives matter and then say hey this is happening to our community you're disturbing us you've been disturbing us and we're not having this you're like hey i feel that too like this is this is my life so we're trying to like unblur a lot of lines and say that we are black because the the system sees us just as that i mean technically we have it double as bad because we're Muslim and black. And I feel like a lot of Muslims are coming to that realization. Education helped Awali evolve his thinking about African-Americans. He took history classes and had black mentors. And then, of course, later on, it helped that, you know, really people can't really distinguish the differences between African and <laughs> Somalis either. So that you know that you, you, you share a lot of the same struggles. But I also get very defensive, too. Because I know that the experiences of immigrants and the experiences of African-Americans are different. Mm -hmm. African-Americans have really had to put up with slavery and, you know, Jim Crow and structural racism hundreds and thousands of years before we came to here. You know, I think growing up in a Somali community and where everybody is kind of like you didn't really come with all those packages and didn't really have to do with all those challenges. Uh, So for me, you know, while I see the similarities that we have, I think that we can't really go so far as to say that we're the same, because I think we have to really respect and recognize that we have different sets of struggles and challenges and support each other through that healing process. Well said. So that's the kind of stuff they've been trying to teach their families. Filson says her mom gets it. We have conversations back and forth about Black people and just the state of what's happened to them and a lot at times she has she slips up and she has something very anti-black and she would just she'll check herself or we'll continue to have the conversations and like a couple of days ago she was talking to her friend and she's like talking about black people and slavery and how that still affects them and I was like hey that was my conversation with her now she's having with other people so it's 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 working out you've changed her yeah slowly changing her but it like you know the ugliness comes out because we're all in this stew of hate So it's in us, but we're trying to unlearn it at the same time. Filson says it might be best summed up in a song. Tupac, he has a lyric. It goes, if we make it through the night, there's a brighter day. Like, I've been thinking a lot about, like, how America, it makes us think that our problems are our problems only, and we're isolated, and you need to get through your shit because nobody's going to understand you. And I feel like that lyric, that lyric is so powerful because... If we are in this mindset that white supremacy makes us believe that we're alone and our problems are only our problems, and if we get stuck in there, I feel like that's where we lose hope. But if we open up our path of thinking, like, hey, I'm alone, but a lot of other people are feeling this. There's so many of us, so we can, like, band up and go through that that brighter day. Tupac. I wish I could take the pain away. If you can make it through the night, there's a brighter day. Everything will be alright if you hold on. It's a struggle every day, gotta roll on. And there's no way I could pay you back. But my plan is to show you that I understand. You all appreciate it. Dear mama. We're going to speak now with New York City Police Commissioner Bill Bratton. In a surprise announcement yesterday, Bratton said he is stepping down on September 1st. 
This is his second time around as head of the nation's largest police force. Under his watch, crime rates in New York have come down, but his force, like many others, is under scrutiny for its treatment of people of color. Commissioner Bratton joins us from New York now. Welcome. Good morning. Two terrible events come to mind from your time as commissioner. Eric Garner, an unarmed African-American man who died after a police officer put him in an illegal chokehold, and what appeared to be the revenge killing of two police officers as they sat in their squad car. I mean, these sorts of terrible events have been your challenge. Why leave now? Well, first off, let me clarify, it did not appear to be a revenge killing. It was a revenge killing, a direct retaliation, according to the individual who murdered my two police officers. So let's clarify that right off the bat. It was a revenge killing, an assassination of two American police officers sitting in a mock police car. In terms of uh, why I'm leaving now, it's uh, the right time for me now. Over the last two and a half years that I've been fortunate to work with Mayor de Blasio, We've made extraordinary progress in the New York City Police Department addressing all the issues that America is concerned with at the moment. Terrorism, there's no police department in America that's better prepared to both prevent or respond to an act of terrorism. We've spent hundreds of millions of dollars preparing the city for it, 550 additional officers in our counterterrorism unit. In terms of crime, crime, unlike many other cities in America, unfortunately, which are experiencing increases in crime, New York City has been experiencing a steady decrease. Now we're into our 25th straight year of crime decline, including particularly in the areas of shootings and violence. Mm. It's great news for the city. Uh, the city is experiencing phenomenal growth, 8.5 million people versus 7.5 million back in the mid-1990s, 60 million tourists. In the area of quality of life that uh, New York City, like the rest of America, is experiencing the distress of uh, homeless populations increasing, particularly service-resistant homeless on the streets. Uh, Um, But we spend more money than any city in America on that issue, almost $2 billion a year. Let me just get to something else. You you made your name, or you have been known, for something called broken windows policing, both in New York and also when you were chief here in Los Angeles, where I am. The idea that uh, going after petty criminals reduces more serious crime, that has some merit but many say that had unfairly or has unfairly targeted minority communities. Have you been balancing that with other thoughts now? We have been balancing it in the sense, first off, a couple of your comments. We do not target minority communities. The bulk of quality of life enforcement, not broken windows, quality of life enforcement occurs in minority communities. Why? Because that's where we're called to deal with complaints from those communities. In New York City, we have proven conclusively that the bulk of what we do on quality of life enforcement is in response to 311 calls or 911 calls for emergencies. We have shown that over and over again. Does it have disproportionate impact in minority communities? Yes. Why? Because they're calling us. They want help. Are we not to respond and assist? The challenge for us is in the response to ensure that we are handling it appropriately. And so to that end, In New York City, we are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on retraining the whole police force. We're about to uh, go into a three-day training process following up on what we did last year with every officer. This year, we'll be dealing with issues of implicit bias, on issues of procedural justice. Everything that any commission, including the President's Commission, Police Executive Research Forum, has recommended that an American police force do, we are doing in New York. We are probably around the curve rather than going into the curve on this issue. 
There's an old adage, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. Well, we're making it in New York. Well, good luck to you in private life, as I gather you are now going to. You, uh, William Bratton is commissioner of the New York City Police Department, announcing his resignation yesterday. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure being with you. All the best. And a successor has already been named. That would be New York's police chief, James O'Neill, who's been on the force for 33 years. We're being hunted every day. It's a silent war against African-American people. The hunt is on. We begin today with a tragic story this week, the shooting of 23-year-old Corinne Gaines. On Monday, Gaines, who was African-American, was shot and killed by Baltimore police after a lengthy standoff. Officers arrived at Gaines' apartment to serve serve arrest warrants for Gaines and her boyfriend. Police said that Gaines refused to open the door, and when officers kicked the door in, she barricaded herself with a shotgun and her young son at the apartment. She even filmed part of it and posted it on social media. What's happening right now? Who's outside? The police. And what are they trying to do? It's charging. What are they trying to do? Eventually, the standoff ended when police stormed into the apartment and exchanged fire with Gaines. She was killed and her young son was injured. Although the investigation of the incident is ongoing, one factor about Gaines is emerging. She appeared to believe in something called sovereign citizenship, where followers believe they are not subject to certain laws or taxes of the United States. Some have speculated this belief was a factor in previous negative interactions Gaines had with police and possibly this fatal one. Here with more on the case is Jody David Armour. He is a law professor at USC and author of the book Negrophobia and Reasonable Racism, The Hidden Cost of Being Black in America. Professor Armour, thank you for coming on Take Two. Good to be with you. So the situation is obviously heart-wrenching, especially with a child involved. But before we go any further, can you explain to me what the sovereign citizenship movement is? Yeah, well, it's a descendant of a uh, a law, Posse Comitatus, uh, 1878, marked the end of really Reconstruction and the beginning of Jim Crow, um, state-backed segregation against blacks. And um, you had the federal government call in uh, federal troops to escort uh uh, black children into Little Rock schools in the 50s. Um, and that that rankled a number of people on the right who felt that that was kind of a federal invasion of states' rights. I thought that under the Posse Comitatus Act, they said uh, you couldn't marshal federal troops uh, to act on U.S. soil. And so this looked illegitimate. And you had a movement starting uh, really in the early 70s of this kind of um, uh, a sovereign citizen a movement that said we are not bound by the laws of the of the U.S. and we're not bound by constitutional limitations. And that history is absolutely fascinating. We want to go into the roots with white supremacy and now today what's happened with more African-American people finding uh, an inspiration with the sovereign citizenship movement. But first, I wanted to go back to Corinne Gaines' initial traffic infraction in March. Uh, The basis for the arrest stemmed from being uh, pulled over for not having a license plate. And in place of a license plate, Corinne Gaines had a cardboard sign that said, 
any government official who compromises this pursuit to happiness and right to travel will be held criminally responsible and fined as this is a natural right or freedom. What do you think that means? Yeah, that's part of the, rad- the rhetoric of the uh, sovereign citizen movement. You hear there, there are some noises that, is, that are commonly made by them. This is one. And it's a rejection of the legitimacy of the government, both federal and at this point state. And in de- and, and denying that legitimacy, it's a way of saying I, you're, you're going to have to come and get me. Uh, essentially, I'm not going to recognize your authority. And and she was certainly um, um, moved by that 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 way of thinking, that that line of, of thought. And the other sign that I know she had in the front of her car that was the back license plate. In the in the front of the car, she had "Free Traveler" uh, in instead of say, uh, according to some websites that I've read, uh, doing some research into this, yeah. instead of saying "I'm driving," sovereign citizens like to say "I'm traveling" because that is a right that can't be abridged, as opposed to driving, which is a privilege. I mean, yeah. this doesn't really sound logical entirely to me but to somebody who maybe is into that type of movement is there any legal basis for that there's absolutely no legal basis it's been tried again and again in court after court and shot down uh a lot of times folks are under the impression that if you utter the right incantations the right verbal formulae somehow you can lift yourself from the burdens that the rest of us share you know as citizens of the u.s and it's no courts have recognized that line of thinking so it's unfortunately um, for those who try to espouse it as a way of resisting what they see as government oppression, it's unfortunately for those people um, a road to nowhere. Down that road, destruction lies both in the courts and in conflicts with the federal government has been the experience. Now, we talked about the roots of the sovereign citizen movement with white supremacy and a resistance to government uh, integration of schools. Why would African-Americans today begin to find some type of sympathy with this movement? Yeah, there's a certain irony, isn't it? It's like African-Americans saying we're going to fly under the flag of, say, the Confederacy. We want the, we want the, the, the Confederate flag because uh, they stand for rebellion against federal oppression. Well, maybe they do stand for that in part. That's part of their platform. But it's um, re- resistance to federal um, oppression for the sake of discriminating against blacks and perpetrating violence on black, so you'd wonder why they fly under that flag. Well, it's because at the end of the day, um, symbols are up for grabs. They're, 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 their meanings are contested. There's, you know, in law we talk about the, mutabil- the mutability of meaning. You know, the, the 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 malleability of meaning. And so they found one common piece of ground with this movement that there's state oppression. Now, what the what the uh, Sovereign citizens uh, see a state oppression as having to pay taxes, right, for roads they're using, for public services they're enjoying. They don't want to have to pitch in with the taxes, for example, is one thing. That's very different than someone like um, Ms. Gaines saying, I'm seeing a lot of unaccountable violence by the state against people who look like me, and I want to resist any state authority or refuse to recognize the legitimacy of any state authority that is that unaccountable. Those are two, They're coming from two very different places, but they're being lumped together under that rubric when they, when they adopt the sovereign citizen uh, uh, approach. Right. I think of like Cliven Bundy, the 
rancher who didn't want to pay uh, rents on federal lands when he was grazing his livestock. Uh, he had that type of philosophy. You know, I don't recognize the authority of the government to order me to pay these taxes. Now, this uh, movement with African Americans would be more about the government's out of control. They're invasing, invading our privacy and our our rights as citizens in terms of the um, the use of force by police. Yeah, the reason for not recognizing the moral legitimacy, the moral credibility, or the moral authority of the government is very different in the two cases, right? And we've recognized here in L.A. how important the moral credibility of the government is and of the laws and the court systems are. In in 92, after the Rodney King beating, another case in which you had apparently unaccountable state violence because the officers were initially acquitted in the first trial. The Simi Valley jury acquitted them, and that's when the streets erupted in violence. They waited for justice, and only when the promise of justice seemed so flagrantly flouted by the acquittal by the Simi Valley jury did the moral credibility of the of the law seemed completely shot, and it, we had violence. So the moral credibility and legitimacy of law is the glue that holds us together, that keeps us together. It's very different when you're talking about what Black Lives Matter say is talking about and what you're talking about when you're talking about what Clive and Bundy is talking about. They're very different issues, but we're lumping them together. Does it trouble you to hear, say, uh, Gavin Long, the killer of three police officers in Baton Rouge, he uh, reportedly had filed some documents where he declared himself sovereign from the United States government. Um, Does it trouble you that people are looking online, maybe going down some dark Internet rabbit holes, thinking that they've found this loophole in the law and that this gives them an extra authority to, you know, step away from what the government wants them to do and and sort of go off on their own? Uh, And and it has apparently led to people having confrontations with police or perhaps violence. As a legal scholar, what's your reaction? Yeah, that... Quite simply, there's no legal basis at all for any of these claims, and more generally, down that road does not a fruitful uh, is not a fruitful path to go. Um, what we're seeing more and more is that um, arguments about the moral credibility of the of the of the legal system of the of the American justice system have to be framed in terms of nonviolent resistance like Black Lives Matter is advocating. Uh, and what happens is these sovereign movements that have violence at uh, their base a lot of times are being conflated with Black Lives Matter. People are thinking, oh, he's making anti-state noises because he's concerned about violence against black people. Oh, so he must be repping, repping Black Lives Matter. No, he's repping a philosophy that's coming from sovereign citizens that's violent in nature. Black Lives Matter has always been about disruption and uncomfortable conversations but nonviolently. And so that's the pernicious effect of this collapse of, of some some um, blacks who have a legitimate, um, um, you know, complaint against the state about unaccountable uses of violence. But adopting this sovereign citizen uh, philosophy is, is, is going to ultimately, I think, be self-defeating. I think that police and the community would both agree that no one should die over a warrant for failure to appear in court over a minor traffic ticket. So where do we go from here? I mean, does this mean we need more de-escalation tactics from police? Do we need more education, more talking? I mean, I know that we keep asking the same questions, but what do we do after this case of Korean Gaines? The way to keep Corinne Gaines and the Long and other blacks who see 
anti-black violence by the state going without vindication or without any kind of correction is to fix that, is to fix this, that perception by fixing the underlying system, more accountability. You know, for example, we're, we're talking about body cams. We're talking about more and more um, ways that are going to create trust and confidence between the police and the community. And that will that increase in trust and confidence will make groups like Sovereign Citizen less tempting, right, less less alluring to those who feel alienated and disaffected by what they see as some kind of government oppression. So really kind of assuring up our justice system and the credibility, the moral credibility of it is the best way to end the appeal of these kinds of uh, uh, extremist movements. There, there were six um, uh, platform positions presented by Black Lives Matter this week. A lot of folks have said Black Lives Matter movement doesn't have an agenda, but that's actually not true. A number of organizations uh, who fall under that particular banner have released a number of items and actually have worked on those issues and actually improved on those issues. Uh, well, yesterday, a consortium, if you will, of more than 50 organizations released uh, an agenda calling for a variety of things, including in the war on black people, reparations, divestment from harmful institutions, economic justice for all, community control laws, independent black political power. Uh, right now, I want to bring up uh, DJ McHarris, a member of M4BL, which means Movement for Black Lives. She helped orchestrate these demands and joined us via FaceTime from Brooklyn. And of course, our panel here as well. Uh, Tinjaway, so uh, what was the impetus for this? Because Campaign Zero put together uh, a, a, a list of issues. I know the New York Justice League. Uh, I certainly know uh, you also, uh, a million hoodies. I mean, so a number of organizations have done this. How did this come about and why? Well, first, thank you for having me on. I want to say that this platform builds on the legacy of the Black radical tradition. And the reason why this platform is coming together, because organizations across the country decided to form a united front and to struggle around what were what was the kind of what was the set of demands and priorities that needed to be put forth, particularly in this current political moment. And so what you see here and what people are seeing across the country is really the collection of policy recommendations of demands that are really uh, co-created, co-developed in deep collaboration with organizations across the country. We're talking large networks, grassroots organizations, movement-led and movement-centered organizations, black-led, black centered organizations across the country. We're at a point now where this document, this platform has been co-created by about 30 organizations that are part of United Front and endorsed by an additional 30 organizations. And so this really is an articulation to the world of what this movement is calling for, a political vision, a set of demands, and a set of policy recommendations that we believe will help us move move towards those demands. Is it a matter of, was it, was it in response to any level of criticism saying uh, that this movement uh, was too decentralized, was not organized enough? It was never in response to criticism. Our communities, our movement has always been talking in our kitchens, in our classrooms, in our movement spaces about what's the political vision that we need to articulate, what are the demands that we need to surface. And this movement has always been in community and struggle and in unity, thinking about what are the demands that we need to surface to this country and to the world. And so we took a process and a period of time that really allowed for us to be collaborative, that allowed us to engage in meaningful struggle. 
This platform has been really over a year in the making. It's been a, a platform that allowed for people across the country from various different organizations, but that we're talking about black lives to engage and struggle with one another, to talk about how do we co-create a platform that speaks to this black suffering, but for all black lives, but that also helps moves us towards black liberation. Faraji, your assessment of this, uh, this agenda? Well, I think it's a good agenda. I mean, I think it's a good start. And But, you know, we have to keep in mind that when you're talking about the struggle of black people, there have been many agendas. I can go back to the Million Man March of 95, the 20th anniversary. There's been many agendas put on the table. I don't think it's a problem of us determining what should be done. I think it's a problem of How us to get figuring out. Right. Well, yeah, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but but at the end of the day, we need to be unified. We need to say to ourselves, what is the agenda that we're going to adopt or what part of the of each of these agendas are we going to adopt? But this is getting young activists. I'm speaking of black activists mm -hmm. in a way of thinking more strategically about how to go and get political power. And that's the essential result. But, uh, two points. Uh uh, one, I'll say this. To say there's a, a war on black people, I think we have to be cautious with certain statements. I think it, it almost creates a, a sense of divisiveness. Two, I was talking to Dr. Davis during the commercial break and had a very interesting uh, conversation, uh, which we uh, both very much agree. Uh, I think, and to your point also, we have to begin to uh, teach and develop a, a culture of more engagement in the process overall, yeah. uh, having individuals run for office, and, and really learning the entire process, period. I think a lot of people sensationalize things, and, and we're just talking about our generation is a, a soundbite generation. We have to start to understand how the process actually works hey, to actually yeah. get things yeah. done. Well, personally, I agree with the term, it's a war on black people, because I really believe that there is a war on black people. I yeah. believe my life is in danger, and my son's lives are in danger every time they step out of the door. But I also want to commend this group for pushing the envelope, especially in terms of advancing the argument for reparations. Uh, this is an argument that I think needs to be addressed in this country. Oh, I am so tired of people talking about healing and reconciliation when we haven't had truth and we haven't had reparations. We need that and this is a great place to start that discussion. Can I, if I can ask a question to Ms. McCarris. Um, so it, I want, would like to know if your organization is uh, going to have members uh, run for office, engage in the formal political process, and if not, why, and if so, when? So um, thank you for that question. I, I just wanted to say something really quickly, particularly to, to, towards the the naming of the, the war on black people. And I got about 45 seconds, so go ahead. We, we believe that we can't fight or end a problem that we can't name. And so from enslavement to colonialism to mass incarceration, we believe that there's an ongoing unnamed and named war against black people. And in terms of elected office, we're part of a decentralized movement. And what we believe is that folks across this movement will take on uh, different elements of what it means to push for political issues, what it means to push for our demands and for an agenda. So while I will not be running for elected office, there's various different parts of this movement that we believe if they can embody what it means to uh, to protect, what it means to defend black lives, that they will push for it in various it. different ways. Corinne Gaines, the woman in question here that was killed by police earlier this week, um, had filed a lawsuit a couple years ago against an apartment building that she lived in, claiming that she suffered from lead poisoning as a result of living there. Now, this it was still going through the courts at the time that she was killed, but based on the lawsuit, she appeared to believe that she had been poisoned, and we know lead poisoning leads to cognitive impairment, leads to potentially aggressive activity. Um, when we talk about macro problems, I mean, lead poisoning disproportionately affects African-American communities. That cool, refreshing drink.
In essence, these individuals concealed the truth. They were criminally wrong to do so. And the victims, well, these are real people. Families who've been lied to by government officials and have been treated as expendable, as if they don't count. Well, they do count. That is Michigan Attorney General Bill Shewitt blasting the six employees charged in connection with the Flint, Michigan water crisis. The charges against the employees vary, but authorities say they all tried to cover up the truth. Investigators say the suspects altered or buried reports from two different Michigan agencies questioning the high levels of lead in Flint's children and in the water. Nancy Peeler, Corinne Miller, Robert Scott or the three health and human services workers charged, Leon Schechter-Smith, Adam Rosenthal, and Patrick Cook, or the three environmental quality employees charged. Schechter-Smith is the highest-ranking official charged in the investigation. Investigators say the former chief of the Office of Drinking Water bragged about silencing an environmental protection agency employee who leaked a 2015 memo about rising lead levels. They also say she concealed evidence and ignored reports that the water plant was out of compliance. She's charged with misconduct and one count of willful neglect on duty. This is the second round of charges related to the water crisis, bringing the total to nine people facing charges. And on top of all of this, there's a dispute in Flint over trash removal. Today is the first day trash services have been suspended because the city's contract with Republic Services expired on Friday. A city council member is suing the mayor over her plans to hire a new contractor. A hearing on the matter will, will resume on Tuesday. Joining us via Skype to talk about all of this is Flint, Michigan Mayor Dr. Karen Weaver. Uh, Dr. Weaver, uh, first and foremost, uh, your assessment on these charges, these six, these six employees now charged as a result of this water crisis. Well, you know, good morning. And one of the things I want to say is we've always been waiting for accountability and looking for accountability. And that's what the people of Flint have wanted ever since this water crisis started, was to know who knew what and when they knew it and to hold them accountable at all levels. Uh, and so, so we talk about holding them accountable. Um, when, when, we, when we look at these charges, these are employees who covered up with, with various documents, were you or anyone else aware of their actions? Well, no, I wasn't even in office at that time, but we knew that brown water was bad and we knew we didn't need scientists to tell us that. So all along, the people of Flint knew something immediately after the switch and we couldn't understand why nobody else uh, uh, felt the same way or knew this information because we believed in our hearts that people knew. When it comes to this, this uh, the attorney general, remember, immediately when this started, the AG did not want to get involved. After pressure, the AG got involved. Uh, do you believe there are going to be even more charges filed against other officials? I do believe that, and that's one of the things that uh, uh, Bill Schutte has said, is that there will be more char charges brought against individuals. Let's talk about this trash crisis. Uh, all of a sudden, you're telling uh, residents, don't put their trash out. What's going on? Well, you know what, it's interesting because what we have is a, uh, a contract, and one of the things that was in place under emergency manager was no big contracts that were just you know, automatically renewed. And in a cash-strapped city, that's really not a good decision to make, and a lot of those contracts were not in the best interest of the city of Flint, and so I put contracts out for bid, and what we are supposed to do per our charter is the lowest uh, responsible bid, and so the uh, company that we have 
had been using came in with their bid at $2 million lower. Well, and we thought, wow, I wonder why they were charging us $2 million more before we put the uh, request out for bid. Well, uh, another company, Rizzo, came in $2 million under that. So what happens is I'm not part of the bidding process. The bids are presented to me, and then I take forward the lowest responsible bid, which happened to be Rizzo, which was a savings of $4 million, and it was voted down. So, for the residents, what does this mean? How long is this crisis going to take place? Well, uh, according to the judge, that's the one who issued the uh, no pickup, the no trash pickup. It wasn't me, it was the judge. Uh, and he said that it would be for today, and then tomorrow we will be back in court. All right, Mayor Karen, we would really appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Thank you. We do not know whether the killer of Reverend Pickney and eight others knew all of this history. But he surely sensed the meaning of his violent act. It was an act that drew on a long history of bombs and arson and shots fired at churches. Not random, but as a means of control, a way to terrorize and oppress. An act that he imagined would incite fear and recrimination, violence and suspicion. An act that he presumed would deepen divisions that trace back to our nation's original sin. Oh, but God works in mysterious ways. Dylan Roof was assaulted in jail this morning. Charleston County Sheriff's deputies say it happened in the protective custody unit when inmate Dwayne Stafford was able to leave his cell and attack Roof. Stafford is in the Charleston County Jail for strong armed robbery and assaulting a police officer as well as providing false information to police. News 2's Macy McLeod is live outside the Sheriff's office with more on what Sheriff Al Cannon says happened today. Macy, good evening. Carolyn, the sheriff tells me Dylan Roof was on his way to the shower when the assault happened, and Dwayne Stafford was able to run through a door that was supposed to be locked. Shouldn't have been able to get out of that door. One of the, the first things you do before you take any of the inmates out is ensure that the locks uh, are, are functioning on the doors, and the doors are, in fact, locked. Dylan Roof has been in solitary confinement since his arrest. Officers are supposed to be monitoring him at all times, including in the shower. All the doors are locked. He comes down the stairs and goes into the shower. There's nobody else in there but the two detention officers, normally. But that was not the case today as one detention officer was on break and the other left the area to bring another inmate some toilet paper. The sheriff says it seems to be a coincidence. There's no indication at this point that there was any kind of coordination of uh, events. Uh, again, we're going to continue the investigation and look into those, those kinds of aspects. Dylan Roof has bruising on his face and back. It appears as though he was punched by Stafford. We have since learned in communicating with Dylan Roof and his attorney, Ashley Pennington, that they have no desire to pursue charges against 
individual, Dwayne Stafford. The sheriff says at the least, this is a sign of complacency within the detention center staff. It certainly serves as a wake-up call to all of us concerned, and it is obvious that uh, all in, up and down the chain, we have to ensure that our folks uh, do not fall prey uh, to uh, the routine and that they pay attention uh, to uh, both the procedures, which are designed to protect the inmates and, and staff alike, and at the very least, it, it doesn't appear that that was uh, followed in this case. The investigation is ongoing, including looking into the locks on the cell to see if there are any technology glitches. Live in Charleston County, Macy McLeod, News 2. Now let me just say, we have extraordinary appreciation and respect for the vast majority of police officers who put their lives on the line to protect us every single day. They've got a dangerous job. It is a tough job. A cop in Texas lost his job after he got drunk, went behind the wheel, and opened fire at a local church. Somerville County Sheriff's Deputy William Cox is the individual who did lose his job. And the Appropriate name. interesting component to this story is that all criminal charges against him have been dropped. So he's not facing any criminal charges, but he did lose his job. Now, here's a local news report from a Fox affiliate, KDFW, uh, where they explain why he did what he did. Take a look. Man, I'm sorry. William Cox was the Somervale County Sheriff's Deputy July 13th when he was crying and appeared drunk in the parking lot of an Ellis County church early in the morning. Avila officers responding to a 911 call for shots fired. This is Ovilla police body cam. Cox tells the officer. Because my boys are getting killed in Dallas. The deputy referring to the ambush attack that killed five officers July 7th in Dallas. The black cops started killing our boys in Dallas. The Ovilla officer detains Cox, putting him in handcuffs until a sheriff's deputy arrived. Cox confessed he was upset over the police ambush, got very drunk, and had to let off stress. His stress relief was to fire guns in a residential neighborhood in the parking lot of the Shiloh Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Yeah, there's three shots here. Church's pastor, Vernon Sansom, can be heard on the Ellis County deputy's recording. There was damage in the sanctuary of the church where some of Cox's relatives are longtime members. Cox charged with deadly conduct and taken to Ellis County Jail. The same day Cox was arrested, the pastor signed what's called an affidavit of non-prosecution. Cox was released from jail the next day, never having to post bail. This was Cox when he was taken into custody. And this is the jail bookend photo of William Cox we received in open records request. A photograph of a brick wall. No picture of Cox, who once worked as a jailer in Ellis County. I mean, that's a little questionable to say the least, right? Apparently, uh, when he was getting arrested, he also said, uh, the black coon start killing my boys. Yeah, that's the one where the local news said, unintelligible, start killing my boys. No, it was intelligible. You could hear it. He said the black coon. Yeah. Um, and also, officers found a thirty-eight caliber revolver, his service gun, and 28 bullet casings in his car. So, look, he's... He has issues. He has severe issues. Um, the pastor decided to drop charges or not pursue charges against him. Look, I'm glad he lost his job. I'm, I'm really relieved about that. I don't. I don't know if I want him in prison. I don't. I mean, he 
potentially could have killed people doing what he did, right? Yeah. Um, but I wish that the same type of compassion was used for other people, not just cops. And then he's, you know, yelling and screaming in front of a church. Now, but then he gets super dark. First of all, he's firing uh, into a church. Could have killed yeah. people. Yep. That's it, it. Couldn't be any more serious. Second of all, when he got racial with the black goons killed uh, my boys, we're like, oh, Jesus, this this story's nothing near fun. It's a disaster yeah. story. So then we looked into the church because we were wondering if he was firing into a black church, mm-hmm. right? No. His and it turns out go there and. No, it turns out, no, not at all. It's a white church, okay? The pastor's white. There's nothing racial about the church at all. He's just a dumbass drunk Mm -hmm. who got drunk and started firing into this local church. Now, that doesn't make it any better. He still could have killed people. It's the same bullets either way. Um, And so, but I guess that, you know, there's maybe a little, like, it wasn't as malicious. Like, if he's firing, talking, doing racial slurs and then firing into a black church, then you worry that it's, like he meant to kill people. In this case, he's just thinking maybe he's a dumbass drunk. Either way, though, if anyone else was firing bullets in the church for whatever reason, and they weren't already a cop, oh, they're going to get arrested, and yeah. they're, they're going to serve some serious time. Yeah, they are. They are. And so, look, I watched that, and what he did was horrible, right? And I, I'm not making any excuses for it whatsoever. But he has some mental health issues, right? And there's that compassionate, empathetic part of me that's like, He shouldn't be a cop, and I'm glad he's not a cop anymore, okay? But he's got problems, and he needs help more than anything else. But but again, I want that same type of compassion for everyone else who's in a similar situation, right? I don't know if he knows any of those Dallas cops. He's obviously very distraught about what happened, which is understandable. He's a cop himself, and the area they're in is only 20 miles outside of Dallas. Mm -hmm. Um, But with that said, look, it's not an excuse. It just means he, he needs help. He needs to be forced to get mental health care. So, as we always say on the show, all we want is same treatment for everybody. The March on Washington is a watershed moment in the movement itself. But this is also a turning point in terms of the violence that we associate with the movement and the escalation of opposition. Because the fear is that a civil rights bill is coming. It's only a month later that you have the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama and killing of four little girls. How can you justify being non-violent in Mississippi and Alabama when your churches are being bombed and your little girls are being murdered? It's one of the most notorious racially motivated crimes of the civil rights era, the 1963 bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. Four young black girls were killed. Now the Ku Klux Klansman convicted in those murders is up for parole. The hearing is set for tomorrow. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. Thomas Edwin Blanton Jr. has been in jail since he was convicted in 2001, more than three decades after his crime. Now 78 years old, he's segregated from the rest of the prisoners for his own safety. When his case comes up before the Alabama Board of Pardons and Paroles, there will be a steady chorus objecting to his release, including Lisa McNair, the sister of bombing victim Denise McNair, who was 11 at the time. You know, he's supposed to serve four life terms, and he's been in there 15 years, and he had 30-some-odd years of freedom. 
On September 15, 1963, a Ku Klux Klan bomb exploded during the Sunday school hour at Birmingham's 16th Street Baptist Church. The dynamite blast killed Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, Cynthia Wesley, and Addie Mae Collins, and seriously wounded Addie Mae's sister, Sarah. The girls had gone to the restroom to freshen up before serving on Youth Sunday. They, these people took their kids to church to learn about Jesus and got killed. In church, which is supposed to be your sanctuary, and safe. McNair says Blanton might be an old man now, but should serve out his time. Particularly since we have found that he has not had any remorse. He has not admitted guilt. He's not, you know, tried to say... He was sorry. Blanton has maintained his innocence since his trial in 2001. He was convicted under 1963 laws, which did not provide for life without parole. So now he's up for routine parole consideration after 15 years. But this parole hearing will be anything but routine, given the interest from around the country. Groups including the NAACP and the family organization Jack and Jill of America have sent letters objecting to Blanton's possible release. The current pastor of the 16th Street Baptist Church plans to attend the hearing. So does bombing survivor Sarah Collins Rudolph. Doug Jones also hopes to speak. He was the federal prosecutor who tried and convicted Blanton and another Klansman after the FBI reopened the case in the 1990s. Only one other person had been convicted in 1977. Jones considers Blanton a terrorist. He killed four children on a Sunday morning, innocent kids, you know, trying to achieve a political goal of maintaining a basically immoral way of life, the segregated South. Jones says Blanton might be technically eligible for parole now, but given the racial tensions today, he says the best place for the elderly Klansmen is behind bars. What that bombing and the deaths of those children remind us so much about what's going on in the country today, that we've got to continue to have these dialogues. We've got to continue to understand what motivates people in the name of hate. Blanton will not be at the parole hearing and is not represented by an attorney. The two other Klansmen convicted in the church bombing both died in prison. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Birmingham. Call it a coincidence, two days after Kenneth Walker received a letter in his home mailbox here with the N-word mentioned in that letter twice, Nigga! telling him to resign or regret it, well, this happens during the noon hour. His home goes up in smoke. His home, one of four units here on Oliver Street in North Tonawanda, was on fire. Kenneth Walker got the call while he was at work today. No one was home. The kids were at a babysitter's home in Niagara Falls. Fellow firefighters were here to battle the blaze. Walker and his wife are quite upset, as you can imagine, with what has turned out and taken place here, especially what has taken place over the last few days, because it was this letter that really sparked all of the outrage. The fire chief says that they will get help from the Office of Fire Prevention and Control. At that point, we'll finish up the investigation and it'll go on from there. Other than that, there really isn't anything else I can tell you. And whether or not it looks suspicious or not, you say? I have no idea. You were saying that you were not going to be intimidated by these people. No, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm still not, but at the same time, I'm going to, you know, obviously I have to do what's best for my family right now. Um, resigning from the fire, fire department, you know, that would obviously whoever did this that would actually 
Um, how do you want to say? Please. Obviously, please them, yeah. Um, and I don't want to make you know anyone the same. I don't want to make them think that they won, because then it would give it would give somebody else ammunition. You know, it would give them ammunition to do this to somebody else. Well, this is the racist letter that used the N-word twice, telling Walker to resign or regret it. Ironically, now his home is destroyed by flames. Two cats died in this house fire. Investigators are still looking for a cause this evening. As you can see behind me, investigators are here. In fact, that's Kenneth Walker. You see behind me now talking with special investigators who've been brought here on the scene. We do not know the exact damage amount. Keep in mind, the FBI is already looking into this case because of that racist letter that was found in his mail box on Monday. And of course, this only heightens this case with the fire now a part of it. A lot of support for the Walker family. In fact, we went in one of the corner stores right near his home. They are already taking donations to help this family. We will continue to follow this story throughout the evening. Reporting live in North Tonawanda on Oliver Street, Claudine Ewing, Channel 2 News. We don't need no water, let them begin tonight with some breaking news involving an investigation in North Tonawanda. Police there say that they have made an arrest in a fire at the home of an African-American volunteer firefighter that happened days after he received racist threats in his mailbox. Good evening, I'm Scott Levin. And I'm Mary Alice Demler. We have team coverage tonight. Claudine Ewing spoke with Kenneth Walker, the firefighter who was the victim of the threats and fire. But let's begin tonight with our Kelly Dudzik, who has the latest information about the arrest connected to the fire. Kelly? Scott and Mary Alice, North Tonawanda police arrested 39-year-old Matthew Gerardo just before 7 o'clock tonight. He lives right across the street from Kenneth Walker. That's the volunteer firefighter whose home burned yesterday. Police tell us that Walker and Gerardo do know each other, and Gerardo is being charged with arson in the second degree. Police say Gerardo admitted to them that he set the fire, but that he did not claim responsibility for that racist letter that was found in Walker's mailbox. He says one of his friends did that. Police talked about the reason Gerardo gave them for setting that fire and what Gerardo said about the letter at a press conference late tonight. He knows who wrote it, but he didn't want to tell us who that person was. Uh, stated that it was not race-related, but rather he was upset with the fire department because he had recently been removed from the volunteer fire department. Uh, so right now it's an ongoing investigation still in regards to the letter. Um, and then any other information that comes up, any leads we will be following up on. Gerardo was not in the same volunteer fire company as Walker, and fire officials told us that Gerardo was removed from service in July because he did not complete training. He is expected to be arraigned on that arson charge in court in North Tonawanda tomorrow morning. Kelly Dudzik, Channel 2 News. The one that called me a spook, his name is Officer David Duke. The many people inspired by Donald Trump's presidential campaign include David Duke. The former leader of the Ku Klux Klan made that clear one day after the Republican convention. He filed to run for a U.S. Senate seat in Louisiana. He says Donald Trump's slogan, America first, it's a slogan Duke has used himself. Well, yeah, I used it in 1992 when I ran for president, America first. And it's simply the idea of putting American interests first for American people. Trump's campaign has disavowed Duke's support more than once, yet that has not stopped some white supremacists from attaching themselves to Trump. We listen to the former Klansman because he represents the way white supremacists do that. 
Duke says Trump's attacks on Muslims and illegal immigration have brought Duke's own beliefs into the mainstream. He says he's advocating for European-Americans, as he puts it, while running for Senate. There's a lot of political correctness in this country, and people don't want to talk about their political views. In fact, that's why we have in this country uh, a secret ballot. I want to ask about a little bit of news of, of this week. I'm sure you're closely following it. Trump has been criticized a great deal this week, and a number of reasonably prominent Republicans have said they're actually going to vote for Hillary Clinton, Richard Hanna, congressman from upstate New York, Maria Comella, longtime Republican strategist for Chris Christie. What are you thinking about Donald Trump after these last few days? As a United States senator, nobody will be more supportive of his legislative agenda, his Supreme Court agenda, than I will. I'm 100% behind it. I have a long record of being in favor of protecting our borders from this massive immigration. So I think that those Republicans are those so-called conservatives. They are betraying the principles of the Republican Party and certainly conservatism. But Maria Camella, this Chris Christie aide, former aide who said that she's going to vote for Clinton, said that she just couldn't remain silent anymore for political reasons when faced with bigotry, racism, or inflammatory rhetoric. You know, these are just nothing more than epithets and vicious attacks. Donald Trump is not a racist. And the truth is, in this country, if you simply defend the heritage of the European-American people, then you're automatically a racist. There's massive racist racial discrimination against European-Americans, you know that, and you that's know the that, reality. You know that white people in this country still have the overwhelming preponderance of wealth and power, right? Well, they don't really have the overwhelming, not European-American history. No, they don't. I mean, Hollywood is not controlled by traditional European-American heritage. Are you referring to Jews when you... When you well, say. they're from the Middle East. That's not European. That's not European, is it? That's Middle Eastern. And they have a particular orientation for their positions and their programs. David Duke went on for a while in our conversation, unspooling old racist theories that he said were not racist. He said Europeans built America, even though his own state was built in large part by the descendants of Africans. He wrote Jews out of Europe's history, as we heard. He said Jews control the content of movies and even pay for Hillary Clinton's campaign. Some critics see echoes of discredited tales like these in some gestures by Donald Trump. On Twitter, Trump posted an image of Hillary Clinton, piles of cash, and an apparent star of David. He later said it was just a star. Trump once said on TV he would have to research before denouncing the KKK, though on other occasions he has explicitly disavowed Duke. That led to a question for Duke. How do you read Trump's statements toward you? I would hope. I, you know, I don't know. I, Donald Trump has to run his own campaign. I have to run my own campaign. This is my question, though. It sounds like you are with Trump. Do you feel that Trump is with you? You know, I don't know if he's with me or not, but I, I would hope that he and others would realize that the same lies they make about him is what they, what they say about me. I've always said that I'm for equal rights for all people, but I also believe that European Americans shouldn't be facing discrimination either, and I'm really sick and tired of this very vicious anti-white narrative, international media, in our movies. The Trump campaign has made statements, formal statements, disavowing you and, and people like you and the chairman of the state Republican Party in Louisiana, who's a gentleman who's been on this program, has been very negative towards you as well and said, we want no part of your candidacy. What do you say to people like that? Well, look, Donald Trump can say it's his campaign. He should say whatever he wants to say. We've done an analysis of what's going on here in Louisiana. We've already polled inside the Trump 
uh, voters, and we know that we're going to carry 75 to 80 percent of those who are going to vote for Trump. You think um, Trump voters are your voters? Well, of course they are, because I represent the ideas of preserving this country and the heritage of this country. And I think Trump represents that as well. David Duke, thanks very much. You're welcome. Former Klansman David Duke, who's running for a U.S. Senate seat in Louisiana. vulgar racist rant sent to North Texas cable customers. Good evening. I'm Cynthia Aceguirre. I'm John McKay. That obscene language came as a message across some charter cable boxes today. It was quickly deleted, but as Jason Whiteley found out, not fast enough. He's live tonight in Fort Worth with much more. Jason? John, right now, Charter is trying to figure out exactly how this happened and who might be responsible. But tonight, at least one of its North Texas customers right here in Fort Worth still in disbelief at what she saw. And then you go over to apps and down to messages. April Taylor just made the switch to Charter Cable. And had to pay for installation. You did. So I paid for that message. How about that? But was not ready for what she saw on her TV Tuesday. When I first pulled it up, it was like, what? I was stunned. I couldn't believe it. I I literally sat there like, what? It was a message Charter delivered through her cable box. It said, F Black Lives Matter exclamation point and then on the bottom it said all niggers must die something so surprising on screen she wanted to capture it on camera i literally was physically shaking miss taylor called charter twice and finally got a call back from a vice president who told her some other customers had already received the same offensive message prompting the company to immediately delete it. Charter confirmed to us, quote, we are aware that an abhorrent message briefly appeared on some set-top boxes. We apologize profusely to any of our customers who were subjected to it, and we are working to understand the cause. Ms. Taylor is too. Imagine if your kid was sitting in front of the TV and something racist about their race came across. Sickened such uninvited racism could make it into her home and certain she won't keep the company from which it came. Tonight is uncertain exactly how many customers might have customers rather might have received this message or how long it might have been stored in their set top boxes before the company deleted it. But it was two and a half months ago when Charter took over for Time Warner Cable in a major Wall Street merger. Reporting live, Jason Whiteley, Channel 8 News. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, August 6, 2016. So I have been told compensatory call in. Feel free. Dial in. Share your thoughts, observations on what has taken place the last seven days. The number to dial 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate.
The number again, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Uh, Before we get started, moment of silence, and there have been a lot of these uh, throughout 2016. Just further evidence of the system of white supremacy, the ongoing war against black people. Uh, Moment of silence. Uh, I think some folks, at least people who follow on Facebook, and I'm sure other people who just pay attention, may have seen. uh, It was reported today that uh, Dr. Sebi, a black male, a longtime healer, and under these conditions, we need healers uh, who devoted uh, his time and energy to natural remedies uh, and ways to heal, uh, restore the health of black people as best we can under these extremely contaminated conditions. Uh, He has not been a guest on this program, but a lot of folks were very familiar with his work and uh, just really raved uh, about uh, the effort that he put into uh, trying to help as many black people as possible and also uh, recipes and what have you where you can use food as medicine uh, in terms of just changing the things that are on your fork and what you digest uh, to promote health and well-being. Uh, It was reported that he uh, transitioned earlier today, uh, posted uh, some information on my Facebook page, other people added to it. Uh, Looks like that, you know, this has been confirmed, unfortunately, but that did happen. I did want to take a moment of silence uh, to recognize the loss of Dr. Sebi. context of white supremacy. As I I stated, uh, there have been many losses uh, this year, 2016. Lots of uh, colossal losses uh, for black people this year. Moving forward, I'm sure folks will have commentary on that as well. Uh, The last news segment uh, about the racist message that came, uh, that was on the screen, Charter Cable, this is down in uh, the Texas area. They revealed some of the information uh, in the post where it said, F Black Lives Matter and all niggers must die. They did not reveal that after, and I screenshotted it, so if you look on our Facebook page, you'll see the link for this incident, and you can see what the message looked like. But after it said, F Black Lives Matter, it said 1488. That's one. If you don't recognize racist code, then you'll just miss that. They didn't say anything about it in the video clip, but I recognize that immediately. I've talked about that on the program before and what that means. That is right. I, I am certain U.S. Uh, hope, uh, U.S. Senator Hopeful David Duke, I am sure he knows what 1488 means. 1488, the first portion, 14, these are the uh, 14 words that are supposed to be the credo for many racist white supremacists. Uh, It is one sentence, 14 words. The sentence is, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. 
That's the 14, those 14 words. The 8-8, as I've said before, that is just code for Heil Hitler, H being the eighth letter in the alphabet. That was in that message as well, and they did not discuss that. And I, I think that should have been included uh, to decode the entirety of the message so that we know exactly what was being communicated. thought that was important. You can see the, the screenshot of uh, the message that was sent on our Facebook page and Twitter as well, at Until Justice. Uh, last thing that I wanted to get in before we get to some of the callers, I did not include this in the audio clips that we began the program with, but I shared it on uh, social media earlier this week. Uh, it became, in short order, uh, one of the most popular posts I've ever placed uh, in the Facebook Cows page, uh, to my amazement, uh, because there was not anything particularly you know, unusual or unique about this. Uh, Chicago, Illinois, shout out to Pam, racismws.com, but Chicago, Illinois, past weekend, they had the uh, Margarita Festival. I guess this is an annual event. Uh, where you can go out and, you know, consume your alcoholic beverages out in the summertime in Chicago. Okay, so they have this event, and a white woman is there. Looks like she might have been with some victims of white supremacy, some non-white people, but uh, she goes to a black couple. She calls them nigger repeatedly, like bunches and bunches of times, uh, and spits on them. And they, uh, the victims, the black couple, uh, they pull out their cell phones, so they record this. They have the video. You can see it uh, in the report. Uh, apparently, uh, at least what the report indicated, the officials for this festival, they ejected the woman, and the police were called. They filed a simple assault. Uh, charges against her. It didn't give a follow-up if she, uh, if they were going to press charges or what all, you know, how this is going to unfold. The only reason that I'm bringing this up uh, is because uh, I've been saying for a while, at least 2012, this is the system of white supremacy. It should not be a shock or a surprise uh, that these types of things happen. If anything, I would expect more of these types of incidents. Uh, that's why I say regularly that we just cannot afford to be lax in our codification and behaving as though it's not a war. I think I've been saying it throughout the summer. Even if you're going out to frolic and have a good time, you still got to be codified because the war against black people does not pause for us to have a good time because it's a sunny day. That's just not what the system of white supremacy is about. But the reason I wanted to touch on this just briefly there were a lot of people who were posting you know it's time for black people to start defending themselves and you know he should have uh the black male who was spit on and called a nigger a bunch of times that he should have you know punched her he should have beat this uh racist woman down and that sort of thing and you know you everybody united independent come to your own conclusion about what needs to be done but i at least wanted to give my view and just my counter-racist logic in terms of what i think about these type of incidents uh, number one, any time that I hear anyone say uh, black people need to start defending themselves as though black people have not been defending themselves, oh man, that just, that is absolutely ridiculous. And beyond just being ridiculous, it is flat incorrect. Black people have been defending themselves. If you want to just talk about counterviolence, that has and is being implemented that's been going on for the duration 
of racism, white supremacy. There are countless examples. Anyone who thinks that the problem is that black people have just not defended themselves and we're just cowards and lames and chumps, you are a victim of white supremacy. You are poorly informed. You should hush immediately, do some studying. It could just be some anti-blackness. But at the bottom line, what you're saying is patently false. Next, uh, in dealing with these uh, types of incidents, I also think it's very easy, uh, particularly now with all the technology, for folks to get online, uh, on social media, uh, and be keyboard gangsters and have a lot of courage with their 140 characters uh, and a hashtag about what they would do uh, and how they would have punched this woman down and they would have beat her to death and rah, rah, rah. it's real easy to do that on social media unfortunately that is not worth a pecan uh, in dealing with these events when you have to face it yourself uh, when you get out and you are authentically experiencing the system of white supremacy in the form of a race soldier male female whatever it happens to be uh, just in my view I think Number one, and I want to make sure I emphasize, I'm not telling anyone not to fight back, as I said at the very outset. United Independent, we all come up with our own codified behavior about how we want to respond, how we want to deal with these situations. But I do think it's important we're solving problems without creating new problems. I think there, or it's not I think, the evidence shows there are many, many many incidents over years, not just a short period of time, over a number of decades even, where this exact type of thing, that's why I said I was stunned that this, you know, got so much attention because this happens all the time, uh, where a white person calls a black person a nigger or a spear chucker or spits on them or all of the above or whatever it happens to be. This happens all the time. And in a lot of these instances, the black person does respond with counterviolence in striking uh, the white person or whatever you know they feel needs to be done. Frequently, that does not end up solving the problem. In fact, frequently that ends up creating a batch of new problems. Uh, and if you need any evidence of foot in each world, we just read that Leonita McLean, black author, black journalist, where she talked about the situation. It was a black male on a train. Same thing. They called him a nigger and accosted him. Now this is back. 1930s, 1940s, uh, he struck the white person. They called the police. The black person ended up going to jail, ended up getting in trouble on his job, and they garnished his wages to pay for the white person that he assaulted, pay their medical bills. A foot in each world. We just read that earlier this year. Happened with Scottie Pippen. I think someone brought that incident up not that long ago, and this is within the last two years. He was out dining. He was at a restaurant. Some race soldier came up and asked him for an autograph. He said, hey, I'm with my family. He declined. Race got tacky immediately. Tacky and terroristic called Scottie Pippen a nigger and spit on him. Scottie Pippen struck him. The police were called. They were looking at Scottie Pippen uh, at being charged for assault and all that. And then you got to go through all this rigmarole with going to court. Same thing with Allen Iverson. It's in that documentary. I played sound clips from it before. He was at the bowling alley. Uh, it was alleged some of these uh, little racist children that were there called him a nigger. Big brawl ensues. Only the black people end up getting some sort of charges. His entire career, right before his eyes, could have been over if it were not for the first black governor in Virginia giving him a pardon. We might not even know Allen Iverson as an NBA star and everything that he went on to accomplish, Georgetown, Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, Trevor Dooley, I think M1 mentions him all the time. 
shot and killed a white man who accosted him in Florida. Things did not end there. He's been battling in ongoing court battles where he had a conviction and he got his appeal and still years afterward, he's still dealing with, I mean, there's tons of these situations, even at a high school level. Same thing. They had a, uh, a sporting contest not that long ago. Uh, it was a teenage black male. I think they were playing soccer. Uh, white racist, racist, little racist child called him a nigger. Uh, the black child struck at him, hit him. They only disciplined the black child. They didn't do anything to the white child. They just went after the black child. And even other people said, yeah, I heard it, that he did call him a nigger. They didn't do anything to him. The reason, and I, I mean, I, the list is long because there are so many of these. I'm citing these because just thinking, oh, yeah, I would have struck back and hit that white person and ring, 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 I would have done that. Okay, no problem. You can do that. That might mean you have to answer to a white person with a gun. That might mean you have to answer to a white man or white woman with a gavel, making a decision about how much time in greater confinement you're going to spend, whether you have to do that or not. Again, it's real easy because I hear people say, well, I don't care. I'll go to jail. You're not going to do No problem. It's much easier to do that sitting online when you got your 140 characters and a hashtag than real world. Bottom line, if you want to do that, if you're fine, a white person spits on me, I'm willing to go to jail for 10 years, 5 years, 6 years, whatever. A weekend, fine. No problem. United Independent, I would encourage processing beforehand and thinking how you want to deal with these type of situations so that you can solve problems without making new problems. I think I stated before when this came up, anytime you have to put your hands on an individual classified as white, that is a bad day on the plantation because it's generally not going to just end right there. You will see Voltron before your very eyes where a whole lot of other whites become interested. With this situation in Chicago, it was a white woman. I could easily see a whole lot of other whites because this was out in public. A whole lot of other intoxicated whites, no less, taking an interest in a black male deciding to strike a white woman for any reason. I could easily see that going real, real bad. And just an FYI, the white woman who did this, she did not seem scared, frightened, intimidated at all uh, in spitting on and calling this black male a nigger repeatedly spitting on he and his uh, wife or girl. I don't know if they were married or what have you, but the black couple, both of them that were present. Um, The only other thing uh, I will add to it, one thing, there is some fool who says on a regular basis Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. This was at the Chicago Margarita Festival. Some fool, again, says on a regular basis, one of the worst combinations in the universe is whites and alcohol. Again, a lot of these things need to be thought about in advance. It would be cool just going to the bar. Just go into an environment where there's going to be a lot of liquor present or whatever, cannabis, any other intoxicants, that would maybe be fine if we were not in a system of white supremacy. But with the environment that we have, I think a lot of these things should be thought about in advance. Is this the best thing for me to do? Is this the best environment for me to be in? A lot of social scientists, they will tell you one of the best things, one of the best factors to help you predict the type of things that are going to happen what is the environment in which the behavior is going to take place what is the context of these behaviors if you will that's again regularly i think it's 
stated on this program about avoiding bars and really thinking about the type of environment that you're going to be in. Is it likely, how likely, how probable is it that this sort of thing can happen? And if it seems like this sort of thing could happen in this environment, maybe we shouldn't be here as black people. Maybe we shouldn't be here as victims of racism, white supremacy. I think we did a show a couple years back, Racist Can Ruin Your Life in Five Minutes, where it was the same type of thing. Black people at a restaurant, alcohol was there. Within five minutes, things go really bad. The police are called, and only a black person ends up with charges, and this ends up costing thousands of dollars, time jeopardizing their job, This is racism, white supremacy. These type of incidents, they can end up having life-altering consequences beyond the little five minutes of whatever is said or done. Codification means thinking in advance, long range, so that I can think 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, even 20 weeks later, I made the best possible decisions, reflecting hindsight, Everything I did was flawless, not a single error. This is exactly how I should have handled the situation. This is exactly what I would do next time, and this is exactly what I would recommend anyone else do if they unfortunately have an incident like this. The only other thing I will say, uh, they did pull out their cell phone in this situation, and it seemed like that escalated. Uh, When the black male started recording her, that seemed like she got even more uh, she engaged in more tacky histrionics and the spitting and nigger and all that. It did not seem to deter her at all. That's something that at least seems to be a pattern to me, that the camera having something to record does not seem to deter racist activity. They seem to know the amount of white power that they have. Uh, maybe even in some instances pulling out that camera might not be the best idea. It might be best to exit. I know Mr. Fuller, when we talked about some of these incidents that can just happen out of nowhere, when this is not something that you planned, just out of the blue, something happens like this. His, his advice was to leave immediately. I'm being called a nigger or something like this happens. This is not according to my plan of action as a counter racist soldier. Uh Uh-uh. I'm out of here immediately. I need to be gone. If I'm at a restaurant and this sort of thing is happening, I'm at a festival, I'm at a particular thing with alcohol, where is the exit? It is time for us to go. I do not have an army. I don't have backup. This could go bad real, real quick and end up being something that I am thinking about for years. That was a pivotal moment that changed things for the worse for me. Just something I wanted to make sure that I got in. Uh, again, United Independent. Anybody who says I would have popped her, punched her, stomped on her, and <laughs> cool in the gang, just, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the road, let's get our evaluation of how that turned out. I would ask that we think about that in advance so we can make phenomenal decisions. I think that gets stated on this program repeatedly. And again, maybe the biggest lesson of all, once again, one of the worst one of the worst, one of the worst combinations in the known universe, alcohol and whites. It might just be best to avoid those environments completely. We will get to the phones. The number, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. If you have background noise, if you could use your mute button, that would be grand. Please do not wait until the last minute. That is like, you know, we want to talk about 
things that are irksome. Oh, man, that is as bad as the interrupting. Uh, when people wait, particularly people that know what time this program comes on, you know the format, you know how long we are on, who wait until the last minute to get their hand up. I really wish we could extinguish that. If you know you want to participate, get your hand up. There's no reason for lollygagging and waiting around until the last possible moment to dial in and say that you have something to say. Go ahead, dial in, get your hand up so we can hear your commentary. If we could please not use metaphors. I did make an error. I said Voltron, that is a metaphor. I, like I said, I try to correct myself as I go also, but if we could please not use metaphors, that would be great. Uh, just be as specific, direct to what it is that you want to say. Frequently, people are not clear, accurate when they are using metaphors. They're comparing things that are not accurate. I think a lot of times racists do this deliberately to cause confusion. I think a lot of times it happens, unfortunately, with victims of racism like myself. We're still learning, still trying to get a better understanding of what racism is, how it works. And we just end up using metaphors, analogies, comparisons that are not the most accurate in describing, articulating our views. Thank you kindly. Uh, folks who dialed in, if folks could take about five minutes to share your views. That way we can get to everybody and then extra time you can come back if you have additional comments you would like to add. Uh, the first few folks who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Uh, feel free to chime in. Hello? Yes, ma'am. Um, good evening, everyone, and to Gus. Um, Gus, first I want to say thank you for acknowledging the possible death of Dr. Sebi. Um It has been confirmed. Um, I just wanted to uh, send out my condolences to his family. Um, I'm, I'm emotional because I have learned so much about uh, food and uh, health and herbs uh, from Dr. Sebi. And I was able to experience his wisdom firsthand in 2012 when I visited his Yusha village in Honduras. And he was, he, I don't know if beacon of light is a metaphor, I'm sorry, but um, he truly was a man of wisdom and great courage in sharing his knowledge of herbs and food and health and alkaline health, uh, especially to blacks um, and especially for developing the African bio-mineral balance for uh, uh, our body types as black. So I just wanted to acknowledge um, his greatness and, um, my again, my condolences go out to his family and close friends. Thank you. Ashe, Ashe. Uh, hello? Yes, sir. Oh, hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, wow, that, I, myself, also I'd like to offer condolences to Dr. Sebi. I had the chance of meeting his former spouse, Ma. She was very helpful in the situation, and they're both good people. They will be missed. You know, the, uh, in New York, the black volunteer firefighter, you know, just another case of racism, white supremacy, and the reason 
the race the reason the racist used you know saying that he didn't write the racist letter but he's not going to tell who is which is obstruction of justice but I don't I didn't hear that in the discussion and also just the idea that because he got fired because he was unqualified for the job. He failed in being a firefighter at another department. He's going to attack somebody who succeeded, which also is not a fact of racism, how this was someone he knew, and two, how people who claim that they, that you should be successful in all endeavors, if you beat white people, they hate, they hate you for it. I mean, to hate somebody for being successful is, is really, is, you know, disturbing. But I want to talk about something I read, which was the uh, which was the conviction of a uh, of a cop named Walter Cagle. Walter Cagle was convicted, and Walter Cagle was convicted in the trial of shooting unarmed Michael Johansson. Now this is important because this this happened this week in Baltimore, Maryland. And D.A. Marilyn Mosby was the prosecutor. Now, reason my opinion she got this conviction was because the person she was seeking justice for, Mike Michael Johansson, was a white guy. A white criminal, mind you. Unlike Freddie Gray, who was killed for just walking down the street with a bicycle, this white guy, Michael Johansson, was caught was caught at the store, burglarizing it, e mask and all. When the cops arrived on the scene, he admitted he was doing this to score heroin money. Two of the cops shot him. The third cop, which is Cable, after they shoot him and he's subdued, he decides to shoot him again. That is where they say it was excessive because he was already because he was already shot and subdued. There was no reason for this third shot to, to happen, and he was unarmed. But that's not important. What is important is 
all the talk about obstruction of justice that D.A. Mosby spoke of in regarding Freddie Gray, how cops withheld evidence. Apparently, cops will not withhold evidence for a black district attorney if she seeks justice for a white junkie. They will, they will have no problem turning on a fellow officer on behalf of a white junkie. Nobody is calling for her to resign now. You would think the call would be louder because after all, she just convicted a white cop. Not just prosecuted. Actually, this cop is facing 30 years, but since she did it on behalf of a white junkie, the law and order candidate is silent. All the other people said she should be this broad silent. And I just thought, man, what a difference a week makes. Couldn't get a conviction for black people, for black person, just walking down the street with a bicycle. Hated for it. But a white junkie who is caught at the scene of a crime with a ski mask, admitting to stealing for heroin, he can get justice. That cop is facing 30 years. And even though he's white, what matters is the white junkie's right more than the white cop. All I have to say. White lives matter. Mm. Tommy Hurt? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all. Um, Big clips this evening. I was going to say, um, you know, yeah, what a difference a week works makes. Um, and um, I don't say it's to be funny or to be anti-black, but I just don't think black people qualify to be prosecutors in a system of racism, white supremacy. It's just, it's just not no justice. I mean, you can't administer justice in the system. It's just not possible. Um, that's the Dr. Sadie. Um, you know, I, I never heard of him until probably a few years ago. He came on a blog program that I was listening to, um, and blew my mind uh, talking about growing up in um, the jungle and how, you know, all the things we eat are fake, you know, what is real and um, how to change the way you live and, you know, talking about mama. I mean, it was just like so simple, simplistic, but yet it was just something that was just blew my mind. You know, I, I didn't know carrots were fake. I didn't know... Um, you know, bananas are supposed to have seeds. They're not supposed to be big. You know, like, I mean, so much he just knew from growing up in nature and knew what was right and what just wasn't right. And um, it's tragic. I didn't, I, I personally never thought, I know it might sound crazy, but I, I didn't think he would ever die. I mean, I thought he was just like beacon of health. He was going to live to two, three hundred just because he's so pure, you know, the way he spoke. But, um, this is a humongous loss, one of the many we had this year, Dr. Wells and Dr. Blair as well. And um, it's been a tragic year for us, uh, as predicted um, when we did the 
the first of the year show. Um, one thing I've been observation I've been making here in Harlem, and um, as I, I told people, and I'm sure everyone knows, I'm going through a period of gentrification, and I've noticed um, just wandering around in the summertime and um, being out on um, that night and going to the store and things. I've noticed a plethora of transgender white people, and I'm sort of thinking that this is a they're using this opportunity to come up here where they don't care how them niggas judge them. <laughs> Not you know they're gonna they can come out and and um, change their lifestyle and their habits and, and not be judged like they probably would in a white neighborhood, uh, even though that's their thing. But, you know, with the religions and everything here, yeah, I mean, they're white, so they're already better than these niggas. So, you know, and I just noticed a lot of it. Like, I've seen eight different ones, you know, just going through the beginning stages of it or in the ending stages of, you know, fully making that transition um, from male to female. And I thought it's been very interesting. Um, that female in the Young Turks, you know, I really, I really hate that girl. Um, you know, um, the cop needs help. You know, I just, man, she just pisses me off every time you play her clips. You know, not a pissed off. You know, it's just, it's just, you know, that's just that. The, she's, she's, she's using that ignorant. We don't know better type of mentality when she does these things, and that's going to be her fallback. And I, I just don't like her. Um, the sovereign movement, um, and um, I know a few black people that um, engage in the sovereign movement, or they claim to. And um, I tell them all the time that um, when you're in front of a white man with a robe, he's behind the desk. That dude is the most powerful person in the world at that time. And nothing you can do, say, I don't care. They don't They don't follow their own laws. They don't care about what amendment you throw at them, what treaty. It don't matter. They don't follow none of that. These people do what they want to do. And I haven't seen one person come back with no serious victory yet. So I just don't know if that's the way for people to go. And I'm kind of glad how you positioned that clip because that was um, very... You know, I, I just it just doesn't sound right. But one thing they said that was very interesting was that she sued for being lead poisoned. And um, you know, after the you know hearing the Freddie Gray story and looking up lead and just seeing you know how dangerous lead was, because I remember growing up, it was a big deal. Um, when I grew up, you know, in Jersey City, it was. Lead and asbestos, you know, those two things in particular. Um, and what I've noticed is oh, um, there's a lot of places now. I see North, I've seen Atlanta, Flint, of course. Um, it's been a lot of places where it's been testing the public schools and the lead has been extremely high. And um, I've noticed, and I don't know if I'm making this correlation or not right, you know, but where I grew up at, where my mother still is in Jersey City, it's, it hasn't gotten too much better over the time, you know, um, and there's still a lot of shootings. Um, whereas here in Harlem, I mean, last year, we just had seven murders, you know, amongst all these black people, and we have some of the lowest lead rates in the city now, and they have some of the highest in their schools. And I'm wondering if 
the lead in the environment is causing a lot of the stuff. I mean, this is, you can't be doing a lot of these things you're doing, being chemically induced and not even knowing it, you know. Um, I just wanted to, um, also, um, Bratton, glad to see him go. Um, one thing he said that's compelling is that um, the reason why the police keep coming to the black neighborhoods is because well, they keep calling us, you know. And, I, man, I mean, I don't know if there's any way to check it, but I'm sure, you know, police do get called to the black neighborhoods way more than to the white neighborhoods for the stupidest reasons and have a reason to say, hey, we were justified in being in your neighborhood because this or that or the other. And um, I just really wish that we could limit uh, our, our use of calling the police. I mean, I wish we had our own police force like um, the Jews um, in New York. They they don't call the police. They got their own police that come. I mean, there ain't no police report, you know, regardless of what happens. You know? I mean, because it's just, it's just not um, working. And lastly, I wanted to add... Um, uh, give us one sec so we can uh, nab the other folks and I'll make sure we come back to you because you can well, imagine. It was just about the injustice as far as this guy... He's free for 30 years, and um, now he only has to 15 years. They're trying to release him, and um, I just think that's unjust. I'll move my line. I'm sorry for the tickets you want. No apologies needed, sir. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, uh, if you all have commentary you want to get in. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, everyone. Uh, I concur on uh, what you said at the be uh, at the beginning of the uh, the program on making uh, good choices of whether or not you're going to attend a quote unquote large event where white people are drinking. Uh, I am a, a, a football coach, and uh, as a football coach on the high school level, uh, you do have. Uh, passes to go to college games. I choose not to go for that very reason. Uh, and if, and for the most part I do, uh, and I haven't been to a game in a long time for that particular reason. Uh, if someone did go, a non-white person did go have a plan, have a plan. And you are absolutely correct on the idea. If as soon as you see or think you are in some sort of trouble with the white person immediately leave the premises immediately. I don't care if you're in the, you're in the middle of, a, of eating something, leave. You'd be better off as far as from my uh, understanding, uh, from a codified uh, understanding. Uh, give a little uh, brief history on the uh, Zika virus, as we all know by now, this is reported down here in South Florida as the most uh, amount of people who have the Zika virus uh, in this part of the world now, all of a sudden. Uh, it's, not un it's not unusual that, uh, and I, I would just quote uh, what I heard from Mr. Fuller and Dr. Welsing, uh, it is biological warfare until proven otherwise. It is not by accident that every time something like this takes place is the, the, the overwhelming number of victims of these quote unquote diseases 
uh, non-white people, uh, and it, it is transferred first and foremost by some sort of animal or creature of some type, uh, whether it's a uh, spider monkey or, in this case, a mosquito, and somehow uh, very small numbers of white people get it. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and uh, and this is uh, one in the many. Uh, the area is highly populated by non-white people. Uh, it is known, quote unquote, as Little Puerto Rico, because a lot of non-white people from the place on earth that's called Puerto Rico uh, is where they. This is where they are allowed to stay, uh, and uh, so it's not surprising. Uh, in my estimation, once again, it's uh, powerful white people for their enjoyment or uh, some sort of uh, 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 profit in some sort of way uh, mistreating non-white black people once again, as we know. Uh, so prepare yourself for, uh, to uh, attempt to uh, avoid uh, uh, that particular uh, latest uh, weapon. Uh, number two, the police commissioner. He reminds me a lot of the white people, especially white males. Well, I'm going to say especially white males because white females are, are basically the same. But of, a, of white males that I've worked with for 27 and a half years, uh, quote-unquote smart-ass uh, type of white males, uh, basically bragging about how successful he is, but one thing I learned from Mr. Fuller's uh, codification is with this, with, he, he has this, what, what, what he brags about, a, a, uh, a, a very to-the-point uh, justification that, uh, 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 but basically, if you are attempting to solve a problem, but on the other end, it causes more problems, then that is suspect, for one thing. That's suspect. And that's what I say on that particular situation. Uh, I've seen him a lot of times. If, if you question him enough, he would get angry. Uh, he was questioned uh, uh, months ago about, uh, about the idea of, uh, of, 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 of uh, the, uh, the quota system of law enforcement. And he got very angry from people asking him that question, uh, which is, actually is out of, out of uh, incorrectness when a person does that. Uh, the lady uh, and, and her uh, child, which was shot, uh, non-white black females who are victims of racism and white supremacy, uh, if not aware, uh, racist white supremacists don't care about you or your baby, whether you have them in your arms, or if you still have them within your womb, they do not care at all. They will kill you in a heartbeat, and they will kill your child. Uh, be not mistaken uh, with the idea of, quote, unquote, sovereignty uh, efforts. Uh, there have been several entertainers that I've heard about who spent time in prison for not paying their taxes. VGQ, uh, uh, but... Uh, as far as for what I know, when it comes down to you being uh, the person that they question, if you don't have that driver's license, if you don't have uh, what they say you're supposed to have, 
and the only thing you have is your mouth and some sort of uh, 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 language about uh, your sovereignty, uh, it's just not going to work well out for you as far as I understand from a historical standpoint. Uh, Although... We could hang tight. I just want to make sure we nab everybody. I will be sure to come back to you, our retired firefighter. Uh, Oh, okay. Appreciate it. Uh, Anybody that we have not heard from, uh, just trying to make sure I nab everybody so they can get their one turn, then we'll come back and get everybody. Anybody we have not heard from have comments they want to make sure they get in? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Peace to the callers, peace to the host, and peace to the platform. Uh, you know, once again, we are talking about the existence of a sophisticated form of terrorism called racism, white supremacy. And, you know, I always say that, um, you know, I look at the way that people react to ISIS. And I I say that black people have to react the same way about racism, white supremacy. Anything less than that is, you know, would possibly not be getting the job done. Um, Definitely being more political or politicizing the issue of what racism, white supremacy is, and what it means to us and what it actually does and things like that. I mean, the fact that we're nervous about talking about it publicly and getting out there and doing it and we fear these things and all of that, that is because of the terrorism. And so the way that people are not scared of ISIS and they want to stand up to ISIS and they say that, we're not going to be scared of these terrorists, then I feel that, you know, this is the only route for black people to take when it comes to the actual terrorists who are terrorizing the world in a more sophisticated form. And, um, you know, the 1488 makes me think about 1492 and what that may possibly mean for the discovery of uh, America after that, around 1505 or something like that, Christopher Columbus, black slaves, the defeat of the Moors, uh, you know, the sovereignty issue, you know, is definitely a lot deeper than what um, has been said or like what the people said in the interview. And I think that that was, an attack on uh, the whole concept, um, especially for a black person, um, to kind of just put her in an association with a movement that, you know, started with white supremacists allegedly and all that, and the sovereign citizen movement. And I noticed that in the system of racism, white supremacy, uh, that you know, you got the Moorish people out here teaching certain certain um, ideologies 
or concepts of the law or whatever that may exist or may not exist. And I did notice that, you know, some people are trying these things and maybe sometimes it works, maybe sometimes it doesn't. But then I did notice that this is when law enforcement started to just gun down black people because it's like uh, we can't afford, uh, you know, all of this talking about the law, who really got jurisdiction and, you know, are you really going to keep being a citizen as a black person? And, you know, the 13th Amendment, what does that mean for you? But uh, I don't take up too much time, but definitely those things are uh, a part of the enslavement of the black person continuously under the Crusades and the system of racism and white supremacy. The 13th Amendment, the citizenship, you don't got to renounce it, but, I mean, you are a diplomatic person, so it's, it's a big deal. Appreciate that. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, there are other folks we have not heard from who have a hand up, uh, feel free to share. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, um, good night, everyone. Um I, I, I tuned in late. I, I tuned in when that uh, it sounded like a black male. I'm not sure. I'm going to need Gus to clarify that for me. But it sounded like a black male was talking about um, sovereign citizens. And I, I want to get a, a clarification on that. He definitely looks uh, like a... He looks like someone who would not be classified as white. Um, he also looks like someone who might have a... Uh, white parent. Um, his name is, I think it's Jody R. Jody R. Moore. Jody R. Mar. Um, Jody J O D Y R. Moore. A R M O U R. You can look at this photograph online. Um, I would be surprised if anybody here thinks she would be accepted as a white person. Um, I don't. I definitely think he's non-white but he also looks like he might have a white parent i'm not sure but you can look on online for yourself and come to your own conclusion jody armar that's the person and the person we were talking to that was a, a black female or no? i think that was a white person but i'm not sure okay okay and um i heard also you played a clip about uh that white terrorist Merlin root about him um, being on, I think, some kind of like custody prison. And also that same white terrorist murderer in Alabama, I think, that, I think um, he killed those four little girls in the church. He was also um, on uh, protective, 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 I guess, custody or whatever. And it's just... Uh, <sighs> yeah, it's just... Um, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a lot to, to deal with, to, um, you know, to function in society uh, under the system of white supremacy. It, 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 it takes a, a toll on, you know, your mental, you know, spiritual, physical, you know, I know for me, I'm in constant state of worry 
for my my safety, for my family's safety. You know, I, I'm going say I'm. I want to do something like I don't feel well. I need to see a doctor, and I feel like you know, like second guess myself and and really think like, oh, do, do do I should I really go to a doctor? Is this doctor gonna kill me if I go to them? Will they make me even sicker? You know what I mean? Like the system doesn't care about you. You know what I mean? And yeah, it's just it, it's hard to it, it it it's it's hard to deal with. And um, that 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 sister that got killed in Baltimore, current game, I found it very suspicious. How they cut cut off her uh, cut off our Facebook and Instagram, and also how um, I listened to uh to read and see, and he said he he did a program and. On the program, he brought up current games, and they said they, they had like a, uh, I guess you know a, a gag order, or a gag on on talking about that. And um, I think there's more to it than what they're they're putting on. You know, uh, I just want to say, yo, everybody on the line, yo, just stay up, be strong, and like, just yo, let <laughs> let's replace white supremacy. <laughs> There's one quick thing I wanted to say on the Corin Gaines. Just there, uh, there's a lot of suspiciousness around that case. I didn't play it, but they obviously they talked about that case on many different uh, media outlets. They had a segment on Fox News. I believe it was uh, Megyn Kelly, and she had two guests on. She had a white male, she had a black male on. They were talking about the case and. They were showing video, reportedly of Corin Gaines, and she had a shotgun. And they kept like badgering the black male, like, uh, "You see her with the shotgun? What do you mean you don't think uh, that you can't make an assessment about whether or not this was a just shooting? And you can see her with the shotgun on the screen? What are you talking?" And he just kept saying, "You know, I just, I don't, I have suspicions of enforcement officers. There have been too many cases where." They came forward with a story or a narrative about what happened in a fatal shooting of a black person. And then we found out later on that they lied, that what they reported is not true. So uh, I, I cannot make a conclusion about whether it's just I need more information. So they kept looping this footage on the screen over and over, reportedly showing uh, corn gangs with the shotgun. They get about four minutes into the clip and Megan Kelly says, oh, wait a minute. Uh, that is uh, Corn Gaines, but this video with her with a shotgun is not from the police shooting. So this is at a different time. Now, they've already spent, like I said, at least four or five minutes talking about this. And, oh, she, you know, was terrible. This was her fault. She shouldn't have had that gun. And, blah, blah, blah. and she put her own self in danger and her child in danger. And the police are totally justified. And you can see it with the gun right there. And then it comes, oh, wait a minute. This is this is not from the actual shooting scene. This is from something else. Lots of. It's been a lot of that over the past week, which is, you know, standard operating procedure. But I did think that that was extremely important uh, for this week. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, Gus, and to all the callers and listeners. Um, I wanted to start first as well by paying my condolences to Dr. Sabian and his uh, family and his uh, friends. Um, from what I've been seeing too, just to add to the narrative on what was happening, there's um, some indication that he died while in police custody, and it seems to be a discrepancy whether he died in Mexican police custody or Honduran police custody. 
but um, it seems that there might be some police involvement in um, potentially in his passing or he, him being in the custody of police at the time of his passing. I don't know. Hopefully we'll get more details on that as things develop because this story is pretty fresh. Um, also, I wanted to touch on the clip. I guess it was one of the early clips about the uh, Somali-American uh, woman who was discussing how she was helping to uh, helping her mother as far as her understanding of the uh, black American experience in regards to white supremacy and um, the fact that uh, that even though they don't share the same history as black Americans, they share the same oppression. Um, and I thought that that was just a, a great, uh, a great uh, show of black self-respect, just her taking that time out to first research and study and understand um, the, the black people in the country that she now resides in, um, who basically paved the way for her to be able to come here on a plane and not on a slave ship. So I thought that was really great. Um, also, there was, there was something else I wanted to talk about, too. Oh, yes, I just wanted to touch on uh, the, the reading of the book uh, Blood Brothers also. Um, there was something I wanted to touch on yesterday that I didn't get the opportunity to, but it was a section um, where they discussed a man, a white man by the name of Gary Belkin. And Gary Belkin in the book um, was the person who wrote a lot of the poetry that Muhammad Ali used, um, a lot of the actually anti-black poetry that he used when um, promoting his fights, especially against other black males. And um, I just found it telling that behind this anti-blackness of course, is a white puppet master who's feeding him these lines. And though, of course, he had to have some, some form of anti-blackness to even, you know, spew these things that were written for him, just the idea that there was a white man behind these things gives, gives a lot of um, insight into the system of white supremacy and how uh, you have these, these white men that are in the background you know, doing things that they're not really getting public credit for, but yet the person who's either perpetuating the anti-blackness or receiving vitriol from other blacks due to the anti-blackness that they're, they're providing for a black person to actually use on public display to disrespect other black people. So I just found that very telling um, just about his career. And um, even though I know that um, he apologized to a lot of the black people who he said hurtful things to in public. I just find it interesting that it's a white man behind that and it's only coming out, you know, I don't know if it came out in any of his other books, but in this book, they basically um, point towards that and explicitly state that this man wrote his poetry. So um, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you very much for now and I'll do my line. Book Club, every Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, other folks we have not heard from, uh, if you dialed in, we haven't heard from you, feel free to chime in. Hello, um, can, may I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Hello, guys. Hello to Ari Kawaraju Kama. Um, I miss a lot of the updates, unfortunately. Um, but I want to give, I want to give you two updates. So, two updates. Okay, so I'm um, people who haven't been following my saga, I'm doing... Uh, if you could speak up, your study. volume is a little low, Karma, uh, if you could speak up. Appreciate okay. it. Okay. All right. In case, in case people aren't following my saga, I'm doing what, what would constitute a prospective study on um, being a little bit more aware of your situation as a black person. So I got laid off of cor corporate America. 
and I got a little severance pay. I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try and start my own business, and I'm going to find out if I can make some impact on my community. My community is unusual in that it is extremely rural. We still pump our gas first and pay for it after that, and um, it's like 30% black, 30% Hispanic, and 40% white, so they say. But white people run everything. They always have. Um, So um, since I've been doing that, I I first got interested in, so I said, well, I needed a platform. So we kind of took over the Democratic Party, and a lot of the white people, you know, they left, of course, as expected. But uh, we've used that platform to go ahead and get some things made. And then into this saga, Ms. Bland's... um, Ms. Bland was found, you know, dead in her jail cell on July the 13th of last year. So that was, so that was, that was, that was, that was the source of my sustained focus after that. So uh, the thing is, is to replace the white people who I, who are just as far as I can tell after my study are basically just bandits with, uh, with a conscientious, smart, intelligent people who can run this area very well for the for the betterment of all. Now, and part of that, that's getting rid of the sheriff. So we have people running for sheriff, and that's good. He's a, he's not quite as, you know, informed as I hope he would be. Hopefully that leaves him a little vulnerable. But uh, also that's getting rid of the DA, you know, who's pretty, pretty, in my book, you know, corrupt. So the DA is finally cracking under pressure, and uh, that thin blue line the uh, police officers are starting to testify against one another, which is very unusual. Also, the inspector general is being brought in to investigate allegations in this Sandra Brand case. So it's just sustained focus, sustained focus, which usually black people, they kind of lack. You know, it's just so many things that, you, you know, we get caught up in. It's just one terrible thing after another. But this has been a source of sustained focus. And uh, so the DA wrote a letter. And uh, he wrote a letter to the newspaper, and I I don't think that that's common across the country. And uh, just a quick reading. Uh, I've had a chance to review the fictional accounts reported in the Houston Chronicle. The Houston Chronicle doesn't really do a lot of fictional accounts. That's just me. Uh, This morning related to alleged threats against law enforcement officers and careers. And I I unequivocally state that uh, this officer never approached me or my first assistant or any member of my staff. Now, the DA has had three different first assistants in the last year. So it is highly unlikely that any of those people are still there. His staff is turning over at a phenomenal rate. But this is a letter that he wrote. He's calling everyone on the planet a liar, and uh, he's pretty much breaking down. So I do think that we're, we're making some forward progress. We'll see how it goes in November. That's one update. The next update was one day when I was telling my nephew that uh, reading him a story, and he goes, oh, Aunt Karma, can't have a black princess. There's no such thing. At which point I was, of course, floored. So I've had a pretty, you know, sustained focus on trying to um, dissuade him from the programming that's going on in music and the schools and his church. And after three years of hand coloring all of his books and all of the people in his books and taking pictures out of magazines and making montages of black women and pointing out the beautiful black women all over the place. Um, For the first time last week, he came home and he said that um, he really, really likes this black girl and his heart is beating out of his chest. Uh, 
So um, I don't know if that sounds like anything to anybody, but it's a big deal to me, and I feel I feel really vindicated for all the effort I've put into that. And so those were my two updates. Um, and that, like I said, this is all a prospective study, which is really rare, in, in you know, for Black people. And and it's and uh, I can't wait until the elections in November. Thanks for listening. Grand to hear work paying off. Grand to hear that. Um, other folks who had uh, commentary that we have not heard from, other folks who have commentary that we have not heard from, uh, feel free to share. Hello, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hey, greetings, everybody. This is uh, Puff. Um, I wanted to make a comment and follow up with Dr. Sevy because when I when I read that, um, I thank the mail caller for calling in because when I read when I read it earlier this afternoon that he had passed away, it did say that he passed away in police custody. But I'm glad to get more details on that. So thanks to the mail caller who called in about maybe four callers ago or something like that. Um, the other comment I wanted to make um, was. Um, about the Zika virus, um, you notice that like three nights ago on the news, they said that they're trying to get vaccines against the Zika virus. So they're trying to make people take a vaccine for that. And that's all the comments I want to make. Go ahead. Can I be heard? Uh, I heard both of you will nab our female caller first. Was that 1842? Yes, it was. Yes, ma'am. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, I have a few things to talk about, so I'll try to talk about really quickly so I stay within the five minutes. Um, regarding the post that you had posted about um, the spitting, the female that spit and um, her calling, you know, you know, being called nigger and all that kind of stuff, about a month ago, I was actually a, a white female actually called me nigger, and I just stopped for a second and was like, no, <laughs> and just walked away. I was like, I'm not dealing with this. I'm not doing this. And I watched her because she really was, you could see it in her face. She just thought that was just going to get to me, and I was about to sit here and escalate with her and um, give her the gratification that she wanted to make me feel as though she had somehow belittled me, and I was just like, nope. This is not what I'm doing, and I walked away and left her right there. I will say that I did have, like, residual feelings. It wasn't like I walked away and was like, yeah, I really won that situation or if that was a situation for me to win. But I definitely felt that reacting in any type of way, um, like escalating with her, just would have been um, tacky and, and unproductive. And then so, like, I've been making myself or training myself to – refrain from emotionally responding to things all the time and just take a moment and assess the situation, even if it's like a comment that someone is saying or, or, or a situation and just take a moment. That's just something that I've been um, working on. And then I called in, I think back in June for my very first like workplace racism and I kept meaning to call back. Um, and I tried the one this last week, but I actually am at work at eight o'clock in the morning and I wasn't able to really do it. But um, to follow up, but to get to the story, like maybe a month ago, um, I was invited for like the first time to go 
uh, partake in a, what, a lunch meeting. I was supposed to join the meeting. It had already started, but they asked me to join it later. I already knew they were drunk. I'm the only um, non-white black female. I'm the only non-white black person. So um, we have this real expensive restaurant or whatever connected to our building. So um, I get there and just to be very honest, completely given to the pressure. And like within an hour and a half, um, I consumed a considerable amount of alcohol. And, um, but it didn't actually hit me. So the meeting, it, it was never a meeting. It was just the, everyone get pretty much quote unquote white boy wasted. And, um, and then it like, it ends just that fast. So it was all like in an hour, but it happened really fast. So after it happened is when I actually felt the effects of my alcohol and I was not, um, I commute, I live an hour and some change away from where I actually work. So I had like missed my ride and all this stuff. But thankfully I know people in the you know city that I work. So, um, but anyway, a very long story short, it was terrible. It was horrible. Um, I ended up getting lost for the longest time and they had like friends had to find me. I was in a very, you know, I'm from a more country area and um, it was in D.C., and I'm just wandering the streets, walking. I have no idea where I am. Like I said, my friends found me. Thank God nothing happened to me. But after that, because um, I've been catching up on a lot of the podcasts, and then I try to stay current with the new ones, but I've been listening to you guys. And after that, I was just like, you know what? No, absolutely not. So I haven't had a drink since then. I'm not drinking since then, not just for white people, but period. So that's also something else, you know, in an effort to also say what I deal with as a victim of racism instead of just like pointing fingers. That's one of the things that I definitely learned. And I, cause I went and listened to the drugs used as a weapon against us, that episode of that show and how um, certain like famous people, they would go and next thing you know, someone put a roofie or acid in their drink and now they're tripping and they lost their mind. And thank goodness I wasn't, no one saw me drunk. So they only know that I drank with them. The drunkenness happened after the fact because the liquor, you know, it takes a little while for it to actually hit. So, um, and then the very last thing I'll say is I was flipping through the newspaper in my small little Virginia t- town over here, and um, there's an article, and pretty much skip the story, there's a baby who's like a, a year old, and he was in foster care, and he died from con- contracting a staph infection that he couldn't fight because his foster care parents put him in water that was so hot that when they took him out, and touched his skin, his skin came off. And, of course, they don't use any race indicators in the newspaper, but I said, this sounds really strange. So I immediately Googled them, and, of course, it's um, white foster parents and a black baby, and um, and then he died. And so I thought that was just because it didn't hit any big news or anything like that. Oh, and to finish the story, he's only going to have to serve six months. So I definitely uh, accept and that we are living in a system of racism, white supremacy, and racism is war. And so um, all the frivolousness, all the other stuff, because I'm I'm 27, just to share that or whatever. Um, And so, you know, in my fear and cipher, everyone's like, oh, we're supposed to live, we're supposed to have fun, we're supposed to be this, and da 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 And I'm like, well, yeah, maybe if we didn't live in a system of racism, white supremacy, and maybe that would be all fine and dandy, but somebody's got to be serious at some point to do something about it. Otherwise we'll just wake up and be old and look at our children and say, Hey, I guess it's up to you to figure out what to do with it. So, but thank you very much for taking my call. Outstanding. Definitely. Uh, appreciate that. If I can say once again, sobriety would be best under conditions 
of white supremacy. Can't be said enough, in my opinion. Uh, was that our other caller in Florida? Uh, were you going to add something, sir? Uh, yes, sir. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Uh, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. I just wanted to uh, comment on a few things. I had I, I watched a uh, news article report about a, a white pastor up in, I think it was Georgia or maybe Alabama, that he was, I think uh, he had to resign. He was forced to resign from his congregation because in the report, the white reporter said that uh, 31 people unanimously voted him out because he was giving an interview where he said it was two deacons, um, I guess, had approached him about saying that he should not invite black people to the church. So I guess he was trying to, uh, you know, somewhat oppose and be uh, against that that kind of notion. And I guess this was the results of that. And the one of the deacons did not want to appear on camera. I guess one of the deacons that advised that he shouldn't invite black people. So the guy, the white pastor, was saying, well, you know, that's not with the principles of Christianity. So I guess he ended up losing that, uh, that I guess, that uh, feud or whatnot. So I, I found that very interesting when it comes to the, the religion area of religion and how powerful white supremacy is there and uh one last thing was the uh i think it was the the guy who did the shooting i was that i believe that was a police officer and one of the young turks they said that he said something about the black coon tried to kill my son and like i was thinking of how this system has programmed us in so many ways to call each other these uh, disgusting terms that they've been calling us for uh, I don't know how long. So, you know, just want to put that out there, uh, discontinue the use of these derogatory terms toward other black people. And uh, that'll be it. Uh, thank you. Ashe, Ashe, no name calling of black people. Even though there was a lot of tackiness, I think that was Thomas in New York who pointed out that clip uh, from the Young Turks. Uh, about the uh, enforcement official in Texas who shot up, and it was a white church, church, no less, shot up the church in his drunken frustration. The first time I saw that clip uh, from a local local Texas news affiliate, they just said uh, he made some unintelligible comments when he said that black coon shot my boys in Dallas. The Young Turks did point out that, oh, no, it was intelligible, he said black coon. Now, I saw another report where they, uh, their interpretation was that he said black cunt. The black cunt shot my boys in Dallas. Either way, the black was in front of it, and he was you know, making it clear uh, his contempt for black life. But I did think that was important, certainly the name calling. Uh, anybody that we missed, uh, and again, no lollygagging. If you have comments you want to share, let's get your hand up now. Please do not wait till the last minute. Uh, is anybody that has not been able to share at all who dialed in has a hand up? Anybody that we have not heard from at all? Can I be heard? You are a little low. If you could speak up, please, sir. Uh, just a second here. Okay. 
can I be heard? Massive improvement. Awesome, awesome. Uh, this is uh, Ken Steele from Chicago, and I just wanted to um, give a few thoughts about the current growing situation. Um, the reaction to that whole affair on the Internet has been pretty interesting to me in that um, most of the attention that is given to this situation is focused on Corin, um, Corin's boyfriend um, and uh, her child, as opposed to being focused on the law enforcement officials who made the decision to take her life uh, in this standoff. And I'll say that most of that reaction that I've been privy to has been negative and has been critical of either black men, non-white black males or non-white black females. And uh, it's just very frustrating to see all of this energy, most focus placed on ourselves, each other, and the victims as Oh, your line is uh, dropped out. You dropped out. We're not, not. Uh, uh, we're not hearing you, sir. It sounds like uh, you're very far away from uh, the phone or something. It sounds like something happened where we're not picking your voice up. Uh, the caller is six three six one. We're having a very hard time hearing you. Uh, we could hear you up until, or at least I could, if other people, you know, can hear you. Maybe it's just me, but it, it, to me, you dropped out. You said uh, it seemed like a lot of the attention was focused on uh, kind of blaming and fault-finding with the victims, uh, the black people in this case, and you said you thought that was kind of sad, and then after that, we couldn't really hear anymore. Uh, I'm going to try it again to see if you're back with us. 6361, can you hear us, sir? Not hearing you at all. Caller is 6361. Not hearing you at all. Yeah, it sounds very echoey. I'm not sure. This is a, a new... We've had lots of technical issues over the years on the program, but this is a new and just sounds very distant. It almost sounds like you're not hearing us uh, at all. Um, I will mute, and uh, I'll try and message if you can dial back in if you can hear us uh, if you can dial back in maybe that'll clear things up and uh, you can finish your commentary because i'm i'm having a very tough time hearing you if other people can hear you then it might just be my line but i'm having a very tough time hearing you this sounds like your volume dropped out and you might not be hearing us at all uh, i'll see if we can message and maybe get the rest of your commentary um anybody else that we have not heard from uh at all anybody else that we have not heard from at all Okay, we got everybody. That is grand, too. Um, I know a uh, retired firefighter, I think he had additional uh, comments he wanted to get in. I'm not sure if Thomas in New York had anything else. I know I kind of abbreviated his uh, commentary as well. Uh, anybody uh, have anything else they want to make sure they respond to uh, and or commentary uh, about the response, if any of these uh, spontaneous eruptions of white terrorism 
uh, like the situation that happened at the Chicago Margarita Festival or anything else where it's just all of a sudden uh, some race soldier calls you a nigger or whatever happens uh, and how you deal with those if folks already have a code about how you deal with those sort of situations, what you think the best way to neutralize that sort of thing is to solve problems without generating new problems. If you have commentary to that, I think that would be great as well. But anything else folks want to make sure that they uh, speak to, whether we've heard from you or not? May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. I have one quick little story, um, another one. I was about to get like a croissant from a cafe, and I walk in, and behind the counter, there are these really big, non-white black men, like big Ogun type of men, and like tall and big and everything. And I could tell that they were new because I frequent the cafe. So, and But anyway, they're new. You can tell that they're kind of a little bit confused. I'm watching them. And then all of a sudden, to my left, there's a, a white woman about my size, and she is going off. Like, she takes her hand, and she slams it on the counter, and she's saying, give me my drink now. And, I mean, she's talking to them, and she is just downright disrespectful rude. And they're sitting there trying to, like, mix this little coffee beverage or whatever. So, and it, I mean, it's so... Like, you know, hurry up, you know I got to go or something. I, was, I didn't really expect that. But I was like, do y'all know this woman? Is this something that y'all typically do? And the man looked at me in my eyes, and you could tell he pouts. I could feel how he felt. And he was like, no, I don't know her. So I'm paying attention to her because a woman like that, or any, especially a white person like that, is definitely about to, you know, carry this further. So I watch as she goes over to talk to a manager to try to, you know, tell on these non-white black men that they did something wrong. So I wait, I watch, I pay attention, and then I go right up behind her, and I'm like, I don't know. First I asked, well, did she complain? And then they said, yeah. I said, well, look, I don't know what she said, but I'm going to tell you right now. She was rude, the same thing I just told you. And they said, oh, well, thank you for telling us that, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I'm continuously watching because now for her to have been in such a rush, she's over there taking her precious time lollygagging and laughing with this other woman, putting in a sugar and a creamer and all this other kind of stuff. And I'm just like, you see this sadistic behavior and all that kind of stuff? Who, I don't know these men that were working. They could have been new, filling in. Maybe they work in the back. Someone called out. I don't know. You could tell they were stressed out. And the way she was talking to them and trying to belittle them and degrade them, it was just, it was beyond me. I was just not having it. So, no, she didn't call me the N-word or call them the N-word out loud. Um, but one thing that I've definitely been trying to focus on um, is making sure, you know how white folks take care of white folks? that we do the same thing. Like, I, in no way were they disrespectful. They didn't, I didn't see the entire, entire thing, but I know they weren't disrespectful. You could tell. They were just like, look, I don't really know how to make your mocha latte, whatever, whatever, whatever. I'm doing the best that I can. And so um, to make sure that, you know, we're not, I'm not just silent or passively allowing these kinds of situations to occur and making sure that in some way there's some kind of um, upliftment at the end, you know. Let, you, let them know, hey, y'all not, at the folly or whims of this ignorant, self-righteous white woman, and I'm not going to stand by and not speak on your behalf. Like, you know, look out for each other and that kind of thing. But I'll mute myself now. Black self-respect. Awesome. Uh, Ken, are you back with us? See if your your line is clear, uh, if we can hear you. Yeah. Um, I think I got cut off. Uh, um, what, what was the last thing that you guys heard? 
you said that there you were seeing a lot, I guess like online, you were seeing a lot of responses where it was basically blaming or fault finding with the black female in the Corin Gaines case, fault finding with the black female or the black male boyfriend oh, or yeah. what have you, but not the enforcement officials and we couldn't hear you after that. Okay, yeah. And there was absolutely from my uh from my knowledge there was very, very little uh focus on law enforcement officers. From what I could see, the person that was putting the most focus on law enforcement officers uh, was Sean King, but I suspect that he might be white. So I, I, I don't know if um, victims of white supremacy were necessarily that focused on finding or producing justice in this case. There was just a lot of um, desire to find some sort of meaning or symbolic gesture uh to respond to this. And I don't think it was very productive. So um, I think that um, we ought to make a focus on having people focus on the system of white supremacy, as opposed to finding fault with what the victims uh, may have done in this, in each particular instance. Um, Another thing that I've noticed in the response to this is that the media, I believe, is paying very close attention to online activities, paying very close attention to online personalities that are standing out. They're beginning to reach out to some of these personalities to appear on uh, cable news uh, and uh, network news outlets. And one thing that I've noticed in this last week was that uh, one such uh, personality, Tariq Nasheed, he was put on with uh, against uh, two uh, other victims of white supremacy. And I suspected right when I saw this that this was going to be a setup. And then sure enough, uh, the only outcome that I was able to see from this entire uh, affair was bickering and fighting and name-calling between non-white victims um, use of slurs and terms that have been used by uh, white supremacists against uh, black people in the past, and um, it didn't seem very constructive at all. There was absolutely no focus placed on any of the white supremacists who orchestrated this whole situation, no focus on the producers of the Dr. Drew show, no focus on uh, producers at CNN headline news, no focus placed on any of the uh, PAs or assistants or anybody who may have been responsible for doing the research to find the people who they showcased on their program. And the only people that I see who have benefited from all of this uh, are the people at CNN um, who are getting ratings, who are getting um, new viewers who are getting uh, more clicks on their programs. So I think as things seem to be heating up or sorry, things seem to be um, getting more intense uh, with respect to uh, the activities of white supremacists, I think that we need to understand that these people are very, very intelligent and these people are very capable of using us in ways that we are not even aware that we are being used. So 
if we could um, stick to, with the code uh, as written by uh, Neely Fuller, there are great suggestions in there, especially in the 10 stops section um, with focus in this situation with respect to stop fighting, stop name calling, and stop bickering. So please, please, please refrain from attacking other victims of white supremacy and focus on the perpetrators and those who are most at fault. Thank you. I'll mute my line. Ashe, Ashe. Uh, other folks who uh, had comments, uh, particularly if we have not heard from you, you should definitely speak up now. But anybody else that had comments they wanted to make sure to share if you had additional thoughts also? assume we did not miss anybody retired firefighter did you have your additional thoughts you wanted to get in yes uh i uh, concur with the last caller uh he reminded me of something uh it's a no-no it should be a no-no with the idea of of uh different uh non-white victims of racial supremacy uh to having a comparison contest uh, it should be avoided. It should be avoided. Uh, that was something that through your, your clips that I observed where some, it sounded like a non-white black person was talking about, uh, uh, in between the differences of the so-called, uh, sovereign, uh, uh, efforts, uh, versus, uh, black lives matter, uh, white people, uh, use that use that type of uh, uh, action uh, to divert and deceive non-white people to take them off focus uh, and they've been very successful at that for a very long time uh, also uh, last la well not last but not least but also I just wanted to mention that even though I said about the warnings to uh, black ladies and also people who were involved in the, the sovereign efforts, uh, she still shouldn't have gotten killed. <laughs> uh, that still it was an act of racism, white supremacy that took place with that lady. And, and also with the advent of, of, uh, of also attempting to kill her child, uh, it was very incorrect and an act of racism, white supremacy in the process. Uh, last but not least, uh, I'm still uh, taking my time reading the revived version of uh, the code book. Uh, I am at uh, area five, which is law. Uh, I did. I, I know you. You know that I wrote you about uh, uh, perhaps reading the book, but I've already answered my own question. Uh, Mr. Fuller's book is specifically designed for individuals who think that they are victims of racist white supremacists, so I can understand if you uh, do not have that as a reading, because it should be read by us as individuals uh, to either create our own uh, codified uh, suggestions and start acting them out and attempt to be as accurate as possible in correcting uh, our codification to be as accurate as possible 
and or choosing some of the ones that he has suggestions, uh, but it's designed for the individual. It's designed for the individual, so perhaps I answer my own question uh, to you that I asked to you about, about the book. And, uh, and, but I do, I would advise that, that others get the revised version. It, it is some additional, uh, what I think is constructive information that he has in the revised book. And that's all I have. Thank you. Producejustice.com. Producejustice.com. I would encourage, uh, make sure to review, read the, uh, revised portion on maximum emergency, uh, because it's been my experience that, most of the time, when people speak about that, they are in error, uh, meaning that they are mm-hmm. not presenting what Mr. Fuller has written about. That is a gargantuan problem as serious as that concept is. And this is not a once or twice. This is almost every time I hear someone talk about maximum emergency, it is an error. It is mm-hmm. nothing close to what Mr. Right. Fuller has written. Consistently this happens. Um, I did want to say, because someone wrote in, uh, this actually should have been uh, with the workplace racism segment on Thursday, but I didn't see it until uh, we went off air. So they said, that, uh, if people didn't hear, uh, our Bay Area caller, she was talking about Uber, uh, which I thought was important because with all the, what they call sharing economy and Uber and Airbnb and that sort of thing, uh, or certainly white supremacy is going to be a problem there too. But she was talking about her experience as an Uber driver and having uh, white passengers and, you know, just the tackiness and everything that goes with that. And she was probably not going to do it anymore. So a person wrote in, they said, uh, I certainly agree Uh, With a lady caller from the Bay Area. However, she's playing a dangerous game doing the Uber system. She should discontinue that. Here's the situation. This week, one of the white female co-workers at my job is planning to visit New Orleans, and she's very excited about it, telling everyone in the office. Well, one of the white males walked up to her and loudly said, near my office, where I'm the only black person, that she's going to New Orleans. He hopes that she comes back alive. How would you interpret that? You think he meant that as in there are too many Negroes in New Orleans. Certainly so. Looters are probably still running amok 11 years after <laughs> Hurricane Katrina. That is exactly uh, my interpretation. You all can feel free to share for workplace racism uh, coming up Thursday. Uh, other folks have comments that they wanted to uh, make sure they get in. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to... Uh, Speak on when um, when Ben Carson, when you know the system of racism, white supremacy in the area, like law and politics, and Ben Carson, he was saying like something against uh, Hillary. I mean, uh, yeah, something against Hillary. I'm thinking right, and he was saying like how one of her friends or something that wrote a book or whatever was. Um, openly, you know, acknowledge Lucifer as a power structure or someone to worship or whatever. And, um, you know, he asked the question, like, would we elect somebody or have a leader who openly, um, you know, accepts Lucifer or said that Lucifer was the first person to you know, have a nation or state or something like that. And so that just makes me think more about, you know, in the media and on the news, we always see, 
the white Freemasonry aspect of the system of racism, white supremacy. Like to me, I think that logically that the Illuminati or is a fancy name for a group of racist white supremacists. And so that makes me suspect all white Freemasons, all uh, white Shriners and all of that stuff. And, you know, a part of their code of silence is not to speak about it. And so I see that as being part of the problem, you know, with the analysis that's going on because we definitely know there's a Freemason Lodge close to where you're at. We we know there's a Shriner Temple. We know there's, you know, all of these secret places that white people go to talk about the big secret, which is that we really terrorize black people and non-white people, and then we go out and we act, you know, another kind of way. So I find that very suspicious where you also have all of these churches and, you know, stuff like that. And then I heard one caller say that the Jews in New York have their own police force. And I just wonder what kind of sovereignty is that? And I, that's all I want to say. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Um, I just wanted to speak to, um, there was a black female who was talking about, um, a, about not drinking anymore, especially with her coworkers and stuff like that. And, um, and that's really great. I'm glad to hear that. One thing I find, especially when you were talking about the, um, the, the clip where I think there was a black male and female was spit on and, and disrespected at this margarita event in Chicago or whatever it is. Um, one thing I find because just understanding the system of white supremacy, the way that I do, um, I think that when you do get a, a, a richer understanding of the system, you start to realize that you don't have the ability to go to many events as so-called other Americans have the ability to do. And that's one thing that I think um, when you really start to understand that we are prisoners of war, intergenerational prisoners of war who are still under the duress of warfare that's being waged against us, Part of the codification should really be about stepping away from those things that could potentially, like you always said, like you were saying earlier, thinking ahead. And the fact that, um, you know, like, like my wife, sometimes she'll say to me, uh, you know, that, that I live like a hermit. I said, it's not that I live like a hermit. I said, I live a codified existence. And I know that there's places that I, that I, that I can go. And even when I go to the places that I know I can go, I'm still conscientious and aware that I'm a prisoner of war. I, and I actually told her, I said, every time I walk out of my door, I I function in the mindset of a prisoner of war. So I not close the door. Um, and and the only time that I let my guard down in any way, which is not much, but in any way is once I'm back in my house safely, um, or if I'm traveling to and from work. That is the same way I function. And I think that once you start to really understand the system, you see that there's just there's things that you can do and that you can't do. And I think that those um, non-white black people who buy into this idea of being an American and, and being 
a part of whatever this is that these white people have created that that's destroying us on such a, a an insanely high level um, that those people who buy into that ideology are the ones who tend to place themselves into situations that can be potentially hazardous. Um, as we study this system and we start to really come to that that rich understanding that we are the wars never stop, it's just intensified and been more refined, then those are the decisions that I think we would have to make moving forward in order to protect ourselves and those that we care for. Um, also, it was interesting, uh, yesterday, today's Saturday, yes, yesterday I got a call at the job from a black female, and um, she's a, a black Caribbean female. I work in the healthcare industry, and I've helped her previously, like I said on the show before. Um, I really go out of my way to try to really extend myself when I deal with black people on the phone because I know how hard it is for us to get quality health care in the first place, and then we get so much misinformation, and on top of that, the vast majority of our experiences are experiences of mistreatment. So with this particular person, I've talked to her on a, on a few occasions. I just happened to be the person to get her on the line. And this time she called in, and um, uh, sadly she had a, a young daughter who is pregnant. She's in her teens, and she was trying to get some assistance in working with that situation. So I really took my time and really went about helping. And she actually said from the moment I answered the phone, she said, I'm really glad I got you. She said, I, I, I lucked up and I got you today. And um, I really went out of my way to help her and, and just give her some comfort because I could tell she was very um, uncomfortable with just the situation being what it is. And she was telling me how um, that their, their father wasn't around. And as a black female, she was trying to um, show her daughters, you know, that what a strong black woman was like because her daughters kept telling her, why don't you get a boyfriend? Why don't you get a boyfriend? And she said, you know, I don't really want to go in that direction right now. I want to focus on you guys, you know, just being a strong black black mother and showing you what that looks like. And um, that her, her daughter ended up seeing some guy that got pregnant by the guy. So I just said to her, I said, I, you know, I really empathize with you. And I said, you know, sadly, a lot of times when we don't have that father figure in the house, sometimes we go, our, our young women will go searching for that father figure in other young men, and that kind of facilitates these kinds of things. So I said, I totally understand what you're doing, and I wish you the best. And um, I told her, I said, well, anytime you call, you know, you can always ask for me, and I will definitely, you know, talk to you, and if I'm in the middle of something, I'll immediately call you back so I can help you with anything that you need help with. And I could tell that she was um, very happy about that. She was very thankful about that. And by the end of the call, I was able to kind of help ease her because I could tell her tone changed and she wasn't as um, anxiety-ridden as she was when I first talked to her on the phone. So it was just something I wanted to put out there, especially for those of us who are listening who work in the healthcare industry, just that, um, that ability to be empathetic and understanding to other black people and really trying to put our best foot forward as far as helping each other simply because this whole system is self-destructive. It's destructive to black people as organisms, and we need to do our best to perpetuate our survival in this system of white supremacy. Thank you, and I'll meet my line. Oh, Shay, black self-respect. Got lots of that. Folks are going to help out uh, black people on the job. That is awesome, awesome, awesome. Hope folks, other people are, are willing to uh, make that effort if you are able uh, anybody else have commentary they want to make sure they get in before we wrap up? No last-minute slide-ins, just making sure, folks, if you have other commentary you want to share. Um, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, um, as for the, the lady who was um, shot by the police, um, I found it very odd that um, they claim that she was holding a shotgun. They shot her. She fell. 
and then shot at them. But yet, the shot that killed her was a shot for her directly standing over her, like she was laying down and shot. Um, and it just sounds very um, suspicious that, you know, um, someone laying down and uh, the bullet enters you in an angle where, you know, like someone's standing over you. Um, I, I think that some of her video posts, um, definitely police look at those before they come out and serve a warrant, I'm sure. And her standing, sitting there holding a shotgun, some of the commentary. It appears that she was probably in a, a, a not a sovereign movement. I, I, most of the black people I know, they, they would probably uh, consider themselves to be Moors. Um, but um, probably looking at some of the people she was tagging and following, um, they they um, went there with the intent to be expecting um, some resistance. And um, that, that, you know, a, a huge part of the doctrine that from what I learned from the people is that um, you comply and you, you live the fight in court. You know, you, you're not going to win in that personal situation right there. You know, I don't, I don't think that um, that's a good idea for people to try to do. Um, that's pretty much suicide, uh, especially dealing with the, the white police officers. Um, in court, you know, you might have a chance to, to win or get some type of um, remedy. Um, but in that, in that situation, uh, I think, um, as we always say on the show, comply. Um, step out the car, do whatever you have to do just to survive that moment. And um, and I'm going to say in car because the first footage they showed of her was her in a car being pulled over by cops. And um, her car didn't have any tags on it. Um, I think it had, like, a license plate she made. And um, pretty much she was threatening the cops. Um, you know, she's gonna, they're going to have to take her away in a body bag. I mean, um a lot of, I think last night on the show, you called it rhetoric. Um, that's what it was, a lot of rhetoric um, that, you know, it's a lot of saying a lot of stuff that you can't back up. Um, and within the system, you know, you're not going to be able to, to win in those type of situations. Um, I, I really, the, the big problem I have with that whole thing is you're going to go to their court and ask them to apply to, to view the law the way you want it to be viewed. You know, and then if they do it or don't, who you going to go get to make them do it? Or I'm going to go to the U.N., okay? So you gonna you think they're going to come in here and tell these people what to do and all these people got guns? I doubt it. It just don't add up to you, you know? just not how the system's going to work. Um, and once again, um, you know, I, I wanted to just uh, come in Ross because, I personally um, have been in situations where I've gotten black people and I felt like they went out of their way to help me as opposed to if I would have got a white person, I didn't feel like I would have got help the same way in some situations. Um, so, uh, you know, good for him to do that, you know, look out for fellow brother and sister that calls. I think that's a great idea and something we could all do. Spectacular. Uh, we pretty much, we did our three hours. Uh, we will be here. Ooh-wee. 
I was looking to take some time off in August because uh, we did uh, over 20 programs in July. Not that, I mean, we've done we've done over 30 programs in a month, but I mean, 20 and up, I regard as, as a relatively high number of content uh, programs. So I was looking to do a lower number of programs for August. I have to write some material for Dr. Welsing and get some other things done, enjoy the last little bit of uh, sunshine up here in the Pacific Northwest. But uh, I am going to have a hoot on Monday. Uh, Sue Africa from the MOVE organization will be with us, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. She is the white female member of MOVE. Uh, Ramona Africa, when she was with us a few weeks back, said that she felt Sue Africa had uh, taken more or as much abuse as any other black member of MOVE, which I just found to be a a profound comment on a myriad of levels. But Sue Africa will be in the building Monday evening, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific. Ooh-wee. Should be grand. Uh, We'll also be here on uh, Tuesday. Uh, Antoinette Harrell, she wrote uh, a book on the Dozier School down in Florida. Uh, Years of torture rape, even killing of black children. Uh, She was able to get some of the black males who survived all of this uh, to tell about their experience. She wrote a book about it. Really looking forward to having her on the program. Uh, That'll be on Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, If you cannot find something in the archives, if uh, just you are confused, uh, info on the program times, you can't find the Facebook page or whatever your issue happens to be. If you have gripes also, guest suggestions, drop us an email until justice at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at until justice at until justice. Uh, feel free, drop us uh, whatever commentary you have. Uh, I will do my best to respond in a timely manner. Uh, this is listener-supported counter-racist radio. Invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism-notes.blogspot.com Racism-notes.blogspot.com Listener-supported counter-racist radio. Uh, when you hit the blog, PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you're not into PayPal, drop us an email. We will get you a physical mailing address while you're on the blog. You can see the most recent post uh, last week uh, about Hillary Clinton and uh, her exploitation of dead black people. Uh, Check that out. Thanks for the folks for sharing, supporting uh, that the past seven days as well. Uh, The last thing just that I will get in to really emphasize, uh, I don't just, you know, the commentary Uh, that I make at the end of each program. I don't just say that just to be saying it. Uh, I have heard directly from people who listen to this program, uh, who have read Mr. Fuller's material, have read Dr. Welsing, heard Dr. Cambon and some of these other folks, Pam. uh, So they are a little bit less confused about racism, but they still end up getting a DUI or stopped and they have possession of cannabis or whatever it is. uh, And all of these problems that can be easily avoided if just one little bit of codification, sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. If you can't do sobriety, at least you have a code that you follow if you are going to consume to make sure that you do not have to come face to face with Darren Wilson, Daniel Holtzclaw while you are under the influence. That sort of thing. I mean, if you have any grasp that there is a war being waged against black people, you should have 
an ironclad never fail code to make sure that that never ever never happens if you in any way understand that a war is being waged against black people i personally uh, i have friends uh they went to a bar i have never even when i was way confused about racism white supremacy alcohol was still not a thing uh for me i certainly have consumed but it's just not something that you know weekend i need to have that was never gusty renegade so my friends i was not present but they went to a bar and of course here in washington state it's going to be whites at the bar might even be all whites depending on which bar you go to what time it is but they go and almost immediately they start making racist comments. Oh man, why aren't there more whites here? Blah, 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 blah. And this ends up getting physical. They assault uh, my non-white friends. They assault them. Uh, the enforcement officials are called. The whites abscond before the enforcement officers arrive. Uh, so it's the non-white people are the only ones that have to be questioned by the officers and filling out a report and all this other stuff, which takes up a lot of time and energy. Uh, and you hope that things don't go bad. You hope that this doesn't end with you being in handcuffs or escorted or having to make some sort of court appearance and that sort of thing. That's what I mean. Just about all of that can be avoided. For me, the issue is not, yeah, I got my licks in. Yeah, I got, you know, I went upside that cracker. That's totally irrelevant. That's not solving any problems. We want to look at this from, uh, hey, this entire situation could have been squashed. Number one, sobriety. Maybe we don't need to be at this bar, period. Number two, as soon as the comment is made, whoop, it is time for us to go. Whether we have ordered anything or not, we have to leave immediately. There is nothing here that is worth us continuing to stay to see and hope that things work out well. No thanks. We can find someplace else to go. And even if we can't, oh, well. We can uh, go to someone's residence or whatever needs to happen. Just understanding the seriousness. So many of these things happen with no provocation. And I mean, literally, that episode that we did uh, back in 2012, literally, that is not a metaphor. That is not hyperbole. Literally, five minutes is about all it takes. And your life can be altered permanently just with these little skirmishes just you know somebody made a comment or somebody did anything and it can have a massive and traumatic impact on your life that is the system of white supremacy and i mean we need to take that seriously again sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy certainly if you're going to be in a vehicle again one of the worst combinations in the known universe whites alcohol if you're going to be in a vehicle i would encourage buckle up every time that's whether you're a driver passenger uh you do not or rather we should do everything that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers uh let's make sure that we are consistently making the best possible decisions to keep ourselves as safe as possible uh we will be back uh in about 48 hours thanks everyone for tuning in hope it was a constructive investment of your saturday evening creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places in all areas of people activity each and every time 
we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Condolences to the family of Dr. Sebi. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.